Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Macknow today alongside Ray Dinger. And it's kind of a sad day, Ray. Uh, good morning, first off. It's been a long time. I haven't seen you in a while, Ray. It's, it's a pleasure to see you this morning. Great to see you. It's been... Uh... We used to be uh, you used to be part of the team. It was you, me, and Glenn pretty much every weekend for years and years. And then you went off and became a star in your own right. <laughs> uh, and we did a sh- we did do a show together in this studio. But I think it's probably been almost two years now. I think Ray, I'm pretty sure it was the Saturday after COVID had like really hit everybody and sports had shut down. So yeah, almost two years. I mean, it's been a really long time. And obviously, like you said, we. Worked together a ton at Delaware Park and ShopRite and all those remote remotes over the weekends. Yep. But uh, nice to be back with you hosting today. There's certainly a lot to talk about. Throughout oh, the there is. There always is. So uh, a ton to get into today. We'll get into the Eagles and their offseason, the Sixers post-James Harden trade, and also uh, some thoughts on the Super Bowl as well. But it's always sad, Ray, this first Sunday, and I know you loving football the way you do. How do you feel on this first Sunday without football, knowing we got to wait, what, seven months for a real game again? <laughs> uh, it does feel a little strange that there's no game. Um, but I am, um, am knee-deep in my uh, draft preparations. So uh, that's, that's what I'm sort of I'm, – there's no game, but there's plenty of football is kind of what I'm saying. I, and I've started, I've started really, really going through the uh, draft stuff and uh, trying to figure out who the players are. I you know, watched the uh, – Watch Senior Bowl, um, watch the East-West Shrine game. Uh, just try to get a line on, on what, what this college crop looks like and what the Eagles are going to have to choose from. And uh, good news for Eagles fans is that there's, there's some really, really good defensive players in this group. I mean, Glenn and I were talking about that a little bit yesterday. And um, the stuff that everybody had been kind of speculating about going into the postseason that uh, – yeah, this is going to be a really good defensive draft, and I think we all know the Eagles need to address their defense. Uh, those players are there, and uh, anybody that watched the, the anybody that saw the practices down at Mobile for the Senior Bowl, and then watched the Senior Bowl, you saw it for sure. I mean, there are some really, really good defensive players, and uncommonly, uncommonly strong at, at edge rusher, which is a position that the Eagles need at least one, maybe even two guys. So those guys are there in this draft. If you're if that's what you're looking for, they're going to be there. No, no doubt. And when you look at this offseason, Ray, and if you want to get in 215-592-9494, but, you know, the holes on both sides of the ball. We know the Eagles on offense have issues at receiver and, you know, finding playmakers. But when you look at this offseason, do you think it's really about kind of building up this defense and finding a way to really be stronger on that side of the ball? Because the way they played this year, you know, they're able to have some success later in the season, but a lot of that against subpar competition would you really right. focus on on beefing up this defense this offseason yeah that's where i that's where i would go um to me it looks um i i think that you know if you go if you look at the offensive side i think i don't know what they're going to do a quarterback if i were them i would go with hurts for another year uh the offensive line i think is is really good uh, i don't think you have to do much with the offensive line you might want some depth but i think the offensive line is good uh, you've got running backs. Smith is a really good receiver who's only going to get better. Goddard's your tight end. Uh, you probably need one other wide receiver. You need another veteran receiver. Um, but I think offensively, you've got you've got the makings of a pretty good unit. Um, defensively, to me, I think you really need to you, you really need an infusion of good young talent. Um, you need edge rushers for sure. Um, 
you know, I doubt that Barnett will be back. You know, Graham will be back, which will help, but, I mean, he's going to be 34 this season. So an edge rusher or two. Um, it's certainly time to address the linebacker position. I mean, it has to be done. You need to get playmakers there. You just don't – what the Eagles have too long been playing with special teams guys at, at linebackers, basically what they are. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're special teams guys that you're making into linebackers. They're not difference-making players. You look at the really good teams in the NFL, the really good defenses – they got playmakers at linebacker. They got guys that make game-changing plays. The Eagles don't have those, and it's it's time that they go and get one. And then in the secondary, I think you need help in the secondary. I think you need another corner. I don't know if you're bringing Nelson back. Uh, I think you can upgrade there. Uh, Slay has been a good player, Pro Bowl player this year, but he's on the other side of thirty. And at safety, I mean, I don't know if McLeod's coming back or not, uh, but he's also over thirty. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the good players that you have, the best players you have over there are all guys that are over 30. So you need to get younger, you need to get faster, you need to get more athletic, and um, this is the good draft to do it. That's why, you know, Glenn and I have spent a fair amount of time talking about it over this last weekend was the idea that, okay, you see what a really elite player, just one really elite defensive player added to a team, what a difference it can make. You know, what Micah Parsons did for the Cowboys. I mean, they went from being one of the worst defenses in the league, to really one of the better ones this year, and really on the strength of that one addition. I mean, that one guy came in and made all the difference. Well, you have an opportunity this year with this group of players that are in this draft, with the talent that's available, and the number of picks and high picks that you have to fortify. You, I mean, you have the opportunity, if you're the Eagles, to transform this defense from one that just, just was just barely okay. And I don't care what the stats said. They're tenth, number 10 defense. They, they, they weren't that good. I mean, I think the stats are misleading. Right. They need to get better. They need to get younger. They certainly need to get faster. And you have the picks. And if you look at the talent, there you have the players. Yeah, and part of what frustrated me, Ray, and I think a lot of people, is like, we're so used to Eagles defenses, whether it was under Jim Johnson or even under Schwartz to a degree, like getting after the passer and and creating that kind of pressure. And they really didn't do that this year. Is that, is that more on Jonathan Gannon or is that the personnel or is it uh, a combination of both when you look at why they had so many uh, issues in that regard? Yeah, I think it was um, – I think it's both. Uh, I think it's both. They, um, You know, Gannon was very conservative in his approach. Uh he was a guy that was very committed to playing the two deep safeties and uh, not blitzing very much. I mean, their blitz ratio was near the bottom of the league. Just didn't take many chances. Uh, and against good quarterbacks and against good teams, it cost them. I mean, those guys would just stand back there and they just picked that defense apart. Um, I mean, he has to know the limitations of that. But I think he was trying to play within, within the talent that he had. Uh, and if he got better players, if he got good players, if he got guys that could win the one-on-ones up front, uh, that could generate that pressure, um, if he got a linebacker who could re- was an effective blitzer, you know, he, if, would he use that? Mm, yeah, I, I think he probably would. He just didn't have them. But if he got them, if you went and you got him those players, you know, I think he he would he would step up the pace of that defense. And you know, I, I saw, you know, you. You look at where they finish statistically in terms of, you know, number 10 overall yards, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at third down, how good were they on third down? Not very. How good were they enforcing turnovers? Not very. How good were they in the red zone? Not very. I mean, those are the, those are the areas where you really win in today's NFL. you got to be aggressive. you got to make big plays. you got to force turnovers. you got to do all of those things. 
and you got to be really good on third down. You got to be really good in the red zone. And if you look in all those areas, the Eagles were in the bottom third of the league. So yeah, they're tenth overall, but in all those areas that are really generally week to week, what win win the difference between winning and losing games, the Eagles were sort of near the bottom. So was part of it philosophical? Yeah, I think it was, but. I think Gannon would be a different kind of coach if he had better players to work with. Yeah, definitely. And I do need to say, Ray, while it was frustrating watching the game, seeing them not get pressure, I would enjoy turning to the post-game show after the game just to see Seth's reaction when Jonathan Gannon would not be aggressive in late-game situations. Like It cracked me up every time to see Seth just go nuts at the lack of aggressiveness. Uh, I think it's safe to say that's not the style that he likes to see. No, <laughs> that that's fair to say. That's fair to say. Just... <laughs> Uh, I sat next to him during all those games, and it just drove him crazy. <laughs> you can just, feel it through the television. Yeah, it just drove him crazy. I would sit next to him, and I, you know, I couldn't argue. I couldn't argue with him um, because I knew exactly what he was saying, and I understood with exactly what he was saying. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why this is a. This is a I'm going off topic here a moment, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I really would like to see him coaching in the league. I would really like to see him get an opportunity to coach because, um, you know, I've sat next to him for a long time now and watched a lot of football with him. And, uh, and his, his ability to um, decipher what's happening and anticipate what's happening um, is, is extraordinary. I mean, he's really, in addition to being a great player, uh, he was also an extremely smart player. I don't think people understood a lot of how much of his success was due. I know he was physical and he was tough and he was scary mean, but he was also extremely smart and extremely astute uh, because he studied a ton of film and he's a smart guy and he has great instincts. Um, and he had a great career as a player. I think he could have a great career as a coach. I would love to see him have that opportunity. I mean, I always say to him, look, I love working with you. I mean, I really do enjoy spending my Sundays with you. It's fun. I enjoy it. But simply put, you're wasting your time in a TV studio. You should be coach. You should have a headset on and be coaching this team because I think he'd be really good at it. I, I would love to see. And he's finally reached a point in his life where he would do it. You know, for the longest time when I would say it to him, I'd say, you know, I've got kids. Coaching's a tough life. You work. You're, you never come home. You're in the office all the time. And I know he's, he would be one of those guys. Um, but now, in the last two years, his kids are kind of gone. Uh, and he said to me, you know, if the right opportunity came along, I would do it. Uh, and I would love to see him get that opportunity. I would love to see him get that opportunity here. Uh, but I'd love to see him get it somewhere. Because I think if he had a chance to coach, be it at the college level or in the NFL, I think he would do a terrific job. Yeah, well, he certainly has the passion. There's there's, there's no doubt about that. Yes. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. And, you know, questions about this offseason. Eagles whether you think they should build through the offense or the defense, and we'll get into all of it throughout the course of the show today. Let's get started on the phones with Mark in Mount Laurel. What's up, Mark? Hi, how are you? Good. What's going on? Um, I have a question for Ray. Uh, several weeks ago, he had mentioned there was a quarterback's coach out in California that had helped a, a number of NFL players. Yes. And he had gotten the information to Howie Roseman. Yes. And Roseman said that he would check it out. Right. And I was just wondering if you had any more information about the possibility of Hertz seeing this coach. Oh, um, 
Yeah, that was a year ago. Um, that was a year ago. The, the fellow I'm talking about is uh, Jordan Jordan Palmer. He's Carson Palmer's brother, uh, and uh, was a quarterback himself, and uh, but did not have his older brother's ability skill level. Uh, he played in college, uh, got drafted into the NFL, and kicked around practice squad kind of guy, but never had much of an NFL career. But he was a really good um, student of football, and and he made football mechanics kind of his specialty. He kind of became the quarterback repairman, and um, and a lot of quarterbacks went to him in, and in the off season and worked with him. And the list of them, I mean, you go through Mahomes, uh, Josh Allen. I mean, a lot of people give him the credit for the turnaround in Josh Allen. That Josh Allen went and worked with him and came back a hundred percent different player. Uh, and largely because of what Palmer did with, with Allen's mechanics. This is what he does. I mean, he takes quarterbacks and, and knocks them down to the ground and rebuilds them all over again. Um, yeah, and I suggested to Howie, I said, why don't you, instead of letting this guy just be a quarterback coach for hire, why don't you make him your quarterback coach? Bring him in, bring him in, give him an office, and let him work with your guys instead of working with other people. Uh, but Howie said that, uh, that Palmer likes his lifestyle. He likes the fact that he, he kind of, calls his own shots he works as much as he wants to work he's out on the golf course every day by noon if you're a football coach and assistant football coach that ain't the life you're leading you're in an office watching tape all the time so yeah I, I he said listen it's a great idea We've, everybody's thought about it and those of us that have approached Jordan Palmer Jordan Palmer's just kind of said you know what I appreciate the call but no I kind of like what I'm doing right now thanks Mark appreciate the call and and off that, Ray, you know, you look at Jalen Hurts this season. How would you evaluate the way that he played this year? And you see a, a lot of room for growth with Jalen as a passer, and do you think he can kind of clean up some of his deficiencies in that area? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Because the improvement that he's made, the improvement, well, there, there are two tiers to the improvement. There's, there's the improvement that he has made from his time at Alabama, and then there's the improvement – He's made just within one year in with as the starting quarterback with the Eagles, um, and they're both huge. I mean, the improvement that he made from the guy that he was <clears throat> when we first saw him at Alabama, where um, and I've used the term and it really is he looked like a running back playing quarterback. He really didn't look like a quarterback. Um, I mean, he didn't have any anything you would even remotely call fundamentals. I mean, he was just, he was just a runner who could throw. Um, by the time he went to Oklahoma, he had improved considerably. It was not the finished product, but he had improved a lot. You could, you could see that he had worked on it. And then when he came to the NFL, you know, he, and, and he was handed the starting job, you saw this year he was a lot better than he was last year. Uh, and the improvement in just statistically in terms of completion percentage went up by 10%. Yards, average yards per attempt went up significantly. I mean, you could measure it through the stats, but you could also measure it through just watching him play. Um, I thought he made a lot of progress this year, and I think he will continue to make progress because he's a guy who's really driven and will put in the time uh, to get better. So he's he's still got a lot of work to do. And what I am I going to sit here and tell you that he has the ceiling of Josh Allen or that he has the ceiling of a Patrick Mahomes in terms of talent level? Probably not. But I, I do think that when you see what he accomplished this year, which was taking over basically as a rookie quarterback, playing for a rookie head coach with a team that I don't think anybody realistically thought had a shot at going to the playoffs and took him to the playoffs. I mean, he played pretty well this year. 
Uh, and I would like to give him another opportunity to see him. I think he will continue to improve. Will he ever become Patrick Mahomes? Probably not. But he's already good enough that you can win with him. And if he continues to get better, you know, I think I think that the win total could go up. I, I think that he's a, I think he's a really I think he's a guy who's one of the things he has that is not a small thing is he clearly has the team behind him. Yeah, you know, he clearly has the guys on the team like him, they believe in him, they play hard for him, and that's that is not an insignificant thing. Is is for a quarterback, you always have to weigh how the guys in the team feel about him. Do they really believe in this guy? Will they play hard for this guy? Uh, do they believe that he's all in before they get all in with him? And if you see the Eagles players, they clearly believe in Jalen Hurts. He's got the team behind him. So that's why I'm saying, look, as much as he improved this year as a quarterback and seeing that he clearly has all of his teammates behind him, I want to give him another year to see how far they can take this. Yeah, no doubt. And when you look at the previous quarterback, Ray, that's certainly something that, that he dealt with, whether it was Nick Foles coming in and, and going on that run and then Jalen Hurts in 2020. You know, that was something that, that seemed to plague Carson, at least toward the end of his time here in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it certainly did. Um, you don't have that. You don't have that with Hurts here. Um, I think what's unfortunate is that everybody sort of hangs on the memory of the last game. Right. And the last game was probably the worst game he played all year. It was the, was the playoff game. It was it was a clunker. There's no question about that. And and he knows it and the coaches know it. But that doesn't necessarily invalidate everything that about having get getting you to the playoffs. I mean, he did a lot of good stuff this year. Uh and he improved in a lot of significant ways. And if you figure that going into next year that he will be better and the head coach will be better, um I think that this team's in, in a position that offensively, at least, they can take yet another step forward. But one of the things that they have to do is they have to get better on defense. They have to get more help from their defense. Yeah, no doubt. When we get back, I do want to ask you, Ray, about some of your uh, favorite defensive prospects coming up this year in the draft. Sure. Guys that maybe the Eagles could target in the first round. Uh, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. You want to talk about the draft, Eagles offseason, also Sixers. Um, you're still, we're still breaking down the Super Bowl from last week. So whatever you want to get into, you're welcome to today. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now, along with Ray Dinger right here on sports radio, 94 WIP sports radio, 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now on this Sunday morning alongside Ray Dinger. If you want to get in 215-592-9494 is how you join the show, but you know, Ray, we're talking about the draft and these three first-round picks, and the Eagles obviously needing to address the defense. Um, you know, you talked about this being a good year to address the defense at that part of the draft. Are there any guys in particular that you're already looking at and you think would be good fits here, or are those kind of like difference-making players? Because when I look at it, at least, the the Eagles have some solid guys on that side of the ball, but... I feel like they don't really have like those difference-making guys that, like you alluded to in the first segment, like Micah Parsons and players like that. Right, yeah, that's those guys that are truly impact players, those guys that are difference-making players. Yeah, they don't really have those guys. Um, and the fact is, there I, I do believe that there are those guys in this draft and, and in numbers, I mean, quite a few of them. Um, but to your point, and, and kind of what I was alluding to right before we went to the break. If you look at the Eagles statistically this year, they were 10th overall in if ranking defenses. And this is part of the reason why Jonathan Gannon was getting interviewed for head coaching jobs. And, you know, they were number 10 overall in defense, which is pretty respectable. 
But if you look at it this, if you look at it this way, they were 31st in sacks. On third down, they were they were 23rd. In the red zone, they were 29th. So, in all of those areas where big play kind of things, big stops, when you need to stop third down, get them off the field, they were not particularly good. Teams get the ball down inside the red zone, they were not particularly good. The plays where you take the ball away from the other team, force a turnover, flip field position, take away a possession, they weren't particularly good. They were good at minimizing yardage, you know, but that was by the nature of the kind of defense they played. They didn't give up a they did not give up a ton of big plays. Right. But in all of those plays that and you were talking about game changing kinds of plays, they were in the bottom third of the league. And some of that's philosophical, but a lot of it is talent. You need those kinds of players to make those kinds of plays. And that's where that's where right now you look at their roster, they're short. But, again, you come back to this draft, those players are out there, and the Eagles with three picks in the top 19 have an opportunity to get some. And you, you asked about players that I really like. Um, you know, Glenn and I have been talking over the course of the season. I talked a ton uh, about the University of Georgia team. I thought, I thought from the time I saw them at the beginning of the year, I said, this defense is lights out. I mean, they are really good. Uh, and there are a bunch of guys on that Georgia defense that, to me, there's no question they're going to be playing in the NFL. Uh, and so, you know, and I started watching this N'Kobe Dean, who was a linebacker with them early. He's incredible. And he's incredible. An incredible player. I mean, he really is. And um, I've seen you're starting the mock drafts are starting to roll out now, so everybody's sort of projecting where people are going to go. And I've seen several mock drafts, and they've got N'Kobe Dean going in the top ten. Um, and I and I've said to Glenn, maybe I'll be proven wrong. I don't know. I don't think he's going to go that high. Like I really like him, and I think he's the kind of um, catalyst kind of player like, that could just really lift your defense. Um, and I would love to see him playing for the Eagles next year. Um, but then you would say, oh, geez, a top ten, you're not going to be, you're not get a chance at him. I think they will. See, I don't think he's going to get drafted as high as he should. Because he's, people are going to be worried about his size. Right. He's, five, he's, going, he's, going, he's going to measure the combines coming up in a couple of weeks, and they're going to measure them and weigh them and all that stuff. And he's going to come in at 5'11", 222, or something like that. And a lot of these scouts are going to say, oh, no, nah, he's too small. And so he'll get drafted in the first round. But I would, be, I would be willing to bet you that he will be there at 15. So I don't think the Eagles have to do a whole lot of maneuvering. If that's the player they want, and I think he would be a great addition, to go, oh, man, we're going to have to put two picks together to jump up and get him. No, I think he would be there at 15 if that's a guy that, if that's a guy that you want. And if I were the Eagles, that's, a guy, that's a, certainly a guy I would want. And then I would take, um, you know, if you could do that, if you could get him and then an edge rusher, you know, with those first two picks, you get um, uh, Jermaine Johnson, let's say, from Florida State, uh, who – I was almost positive would be there in the teens because there are so many of these good players. They're not all going to get taken at the top. I thought that he would last to the middle of the round. Unfortunately, he went down to Mobile and tore up, tore up the camp. I mean, he was really, really good. So his stock has probably gone up. Uh, but if you could come out of there, hold on to 15 and 16, not trade him, hold on to 15 and 16 and come away with uh, Jermaine Johnson and uh, N'Kobe Dean, those are the two kinds of players I'm talking about. Those are the two kind of guys that come in, have immediate impact, and be game-changing kinds of players. Now, when you look at linebackers, right, obviously we made a lot about this in the past, the Eagles not really valuing that position highly. I mean, I can't even remember the last time they drafted a linebacker in the first round. 
Uh, but I'm sure you do. Jerry Robinson. Okay. 1979. Okay. So uh, is that something, a philosophical thing that should change in Jonathan Gannon's defense? Because you see where he comes from, you know, from the Zimmer kind of school in Minnesota. And then with the Colts where they have a guy like Darius Leonard, is it more important in this style of defense that that playmaking linebacker? Because I guess in, in Schwartz's defense, it wasn't as big of a priority. Well, I think it go back even before that. I think it's um, it's it's really kind of philosophical, it's, uh, and a lot of it's economic. A lot of it's driven by the economics. That um, when Joe Banner when Joe Banner came in and jo- and Jeffrey bought the team and Joe brought Joe in and Joe kind of controlled how the money was spent. Uh, his approach was they prioritized certain positions based on how much money you could spend relative to that salary cap. So they decided that on defense, you know, we're going to okay, we'll spend money for defensive ends. We'll spend money for pass rushers. We'll spend money for cornerbacks. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll invest our money on the edges. And our third priority will be interior defensive linemen. Um, but linebackers, eh. You know, the, they kind of, their kind of view was the way, the way football was trending, more and more teams were going to nickel and dime coverages, and a lot of line, linebackers weren't playing a whole ton of snaps. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, why spend all of our money on guys that on third down are going to come off the field? So that was kind of that was really kind of how this became institutionalized with the Eagles was we're going to spend our money on these guys. We're not going to spend money on linebackers because linebackers are one down or two down players at the best. Uh, and that just kind of became baked into the whole Eagles organization. And that's become, even though Joe Banner's gone, that kind of has lived on. But if you look around the league and you see the really good defenses and you see these linebackers playing sideline to sideline and making big, big plays, you realize, no, linebackers are still important. And you, you don't necessarily have to, oh, just make them interchangeable parts. And I always thought if you look back on the Eagles team, I mean, one of the guys that they, one of the guys who was truly an impact player on the Andy Reid defenses was Jeremiah Trotter. No doubt. I mean, and he might, if you're talking about real impact linebackers, he might be last one. I can't think of one since that's been a guy that was you would say was a difference-making player. Right. But Trot certainly was, uh, and look what he contributed to those teams. So I'm I'm sorry, fellas. Those, those kinds of players still win football games in the NFL, and they always will. And I think the Eagles would be wise to go out and get themselves that kind of a player. And the fact is. Nicobe Dean is one of them in this draft, but he's not the only one. I mean, there, there, there are multiple guys there like that. There's an, another linebacker, really good player named Devin Lloyd from Utah, who's, who's going to go high. In fact, he may, he may wind up being drafted higher than Dean because he, he sort of fits the prototype size-wise, mm-hmm. uh, but he's also a really good player. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of them. There are a bunch of really good linebackers, a bunch of really good defensive linemen, more on the edges than in the middle. Uh, and some good safeties and some good corners. I mean, this is really a good defensive draft. That, that's good that it sets up well for the Eagles, uh, theoretically, this, this year going into the draft. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Bob in Wilmington has a question about the linebackers. What's up, Bob? Yes, good morning, guys. Ray, you just answered my question. Um, uh, I'm a Dean fan myself, but I, I was trying to get your take on Devin Lloyd, uh, if you had your choice which way you would go and, and why, um, he seems to be uh, you know, a, a qualified first-round pick or a high first-round pick? Uh, yes, yes. Um, in fact, it would not shock me if he wound up being picked uh, ahead of Dean. Just because, again, when they go to the combine, they're going to you know measure these guys, they're going to weigh these guys, they're going to do all of that kind of stuff. 
and uh, you know Dean will pass that test. I mean, he's you know he's bigger, and uh, and he is he is really good. I mean, there's no question about that. He's really he's really a good player. Um, he's you know he's six two and a half. He's two hundred and thirty pounds. He'll probably run four seven, um, and he's got he's got versatility. I mean, he can play inside. Or you could play him outside. You could play him at Sam. You could play him at Will. You could play him at Mike. I mean, he's done all of that at Utah, and he could probably do the same thing in the NFL. Um, he can rush I, the passer too, right? He can. He can. There's very little. There's very little that he can't do. I think he's got. Um, he's got a lot of versatility, which is why he's going to be a high first round pick. Um, and listen, would he would he help the Eagles too? He sure would. I mean, he's that good of a player. But you asked me if I had to choose between the two. If, yeah. if I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the board and they're both there, I would take Dean. Uh, I think that uh, even though Dean is going to be smaller, um, I mean, I just watched him play for that Georgia team this year, and I saw how many big plays he made in big situations in big games. And he just has uh, an instinct, an ability to know where the ball's going and be there be there before the blockers. Um, I don't want to – I don't like to compare players because it's 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 always unfair. But he has he has an instinct that reminds me of 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 Ray Lewis. Wow. You know, I mean, and I'm not saying he is Ray Lewis because Ray Lewis was truly a special player. But one of the, one of Ray Lewis's great qualities, in addition to his intensity and his fierce desire to win, was he had an an incredible ability to diagnose plays. Uh, and a lot of it was film study. He could tell by formation where pretty much where the play was going to go, uh, and and he would be there. I mean, he could just read it before the ball was snapped, and he always pretty much beat you to the punch. It's one of the reasons why he was a great player. I see, and a lot of that is film study, but a lot of it is also instinctive. And I see a lot of those same kind of instincts in Dean. Uh, and I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be a guy that's going to come into the NFL and be a, be a really good player right away. I noticed in the championship game, it looks like he's got some leadership qualities too. He was moving guys around and getting guys set up in position, and they were, you know, he he was telling guys where to go. Oh, and for stuff sure, like that. for he, sure. That's yeah. That's 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 one of the things I really like about him on a on a on a really elite defense with a lot of with a lot of players who are going to be NFL players and probably first round draft picks. They all look to him from play to play as far as where should we line up what should we do he was the unquestioned leader of that team that's another one of the qualities you certainly saw in Ray Lewis at Miami I mean Miami had a lot of blue chip players too but they all looked to Ray Ray for you know from play to play for that leadership thing this kid kind of has that same sort of personality it seems yeah it was real it was real noticeable that he was the 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 king of the defense out there okay that that answers my question thanks a lot guys okay thanks Bob thanks Bob appreciate the call and Ray another player that I wanted to ask you about because you know, we've obviously seen in this city the kind of impact a playmaking safety uh, can, can have with Brian Dawkins for years. What are your thoughts on Kyle Hamilton? Because watching him play at Notre Dame, he's a guy I really like. And is there is there any chance that he could make it down to where the Eagles pick in the first round? Or is that wishful thinking? Uh, I think that's very wishful thinking. <laughs> I think it's very wishful thinking. I, I haven't seen a um, I haven't seen a mock draft yet that has him getting out of the top five. Oh, well, now. It's it, the draft breaks down in funny ways, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a school of thought where, boy, he's really a good player. Boy, he's really a good player, but he's a safety, right? You know, do you, you know, are we really going to draft a safety? We got the third pick in the draft. Are we really going to take a safety number three? And te- teams will talk themselves out of 
taking a really good player because eh, nobody takes safeties that high. Well, you know what? If they're that good, maybe you should. Uh, and and Hamilton is a guy that I think a lot of people saw because he played at Notre Dame. He played. He was on TV all the time. Um, when I first people told me about him, and I the first time I saw him, I thought he doesn't look like a safety. You know, he, he's he's six four and a half. He's two hundred twenty pounds. Uh, he just doesn't. You know, my and I guess it's from having watched Doc all these years. I have, in my mind's eye, I kind of have an idea of what a safety looks like. Right. You know, like Doc, like Ed Reed, like that kind of thing. You know, small, compact, thick. You know, I, I don't think of safeties as being 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, so I kind of had to get past that with Hamilton. But when you saw him play, you said, oh, no, this guy's really good. I mean, I just saw that first game of the year against Clemson. The interception that he had where he just goes basically sideline to sideline on one play and, like, keeps his foot in bounds and is able to make a pick on – on uh, you know Clemson in that game was just you very rarely see safeties who have that kind of range and it, he's just an incredible player. Yeah, um, range is a big part of it, which you would expect from a big guy. But um, as I watched him more over the course of the season with Notre Dame, I mean, one of the things that I thought, wow, this is yeah, this is good, uh, is that they used him in so many roles. I mean, he didn't he wasn't just like. Like, when I saw what he looked like initially, I thought he's just going to play center field. That's what they're going to use him for because he has that kind of range. But depending from week to week who they were playing and the kinds of players that team had, they had no problem bringing him up and putting him man for man on a slot receiver. You know, they dropped him down in the box to play against the run. You know, they matched him up one-on-one on the outside with stuff. I mean, they, they moved him all over the place and asked him to do multiple things. And frankly, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. So I think that kind of versatility is the reason that even though you don't often see safeties go like super high in the draft, there's no way this guy doesn't go very high. So yeah, if if that's if that's who the Eagles have targeted as a player, you're not going to get him at 15. Yeah, you probably have to move up for that one for sure. Yeah, two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, let's go to Brandon Brookhaven. What's up, Brandon? Hey guys, uh, good afternoon. I have two questions or comments, one with the Flyers, one with about Carson Wentz. Sure. I'll start with a quick one first. Is with the trade line fastly approaching, where do you think Claude Giroux will end up? Do you think they'll move him? And personally, I'm going to be rooting for him because I really like him, and I hope he is able to end his career on a high note with a cup or something like that. Oh, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you. I think that I, I don't think there's any question he's going to get moved. Um, you know, he has the no trade clause, so he has to waive it. But if you, if you've seen a couple of his press conferences lately, I mean, he's, he's all but said, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to leave. I love Philadelphia. This is my home, but according to reports, Colorado is his preference. Yeah, seems to be. And yeah. that makes sense Yeah, because okay. he's at a point and you, you watch him play. I mean, he can still play. Um, he's just been stuck with an organization that's kind of lost its way right now. But I mean, he's been a good player. He's been a good guy. Uh, and at this point, I would like to see him have an opportunity to, to make a realistic run at a cup. He's not going to do it with this team, so he might as well do it in Colorado. I hope he does, and I hope he wins one. Uh, my next question or comment, just give me a minute to explain, is uh, I was a Carson Wentz fan, and of course I felt upset when he wanted to go and left. But uh, he kept on blaming that he didn't need to change. It was the Eagles' probably fault. Now, I'm just trying to paraphrase what he's probably thinking, of course. And he gets moved to uh, 
the Colts, the ideal situation for him with all the pieces around him. And then fast forward to now, now the Colts are looking to move, move him. I'm just wondering what the heck is, what could possibly go through in Carson Wentz's mind? So my question or comment or whatever you want to say is, Ray, if he gets moved, is he going to be more humbled where he can maybe listen to coaching more? Or what do you think happened? I mean, I, I just, I'm perplexed. I can't get inside Carson Wentz's mind, obviously. No, but I, I, listen, Brandon. Like to, yeah, no, no, I I, I, I I, hear what you're saying, and I, I fully understand it. I'm th- I have a lot of the same thoughts myself. I, uh, uh, I really thought, I really thought that he was going to go to Indianapolis and play well. You know, I, I, we had seen, we had a caller yesterday who said, you know, Carson Wentz was never that good. He was always overrated. And we are now going to get that revisionist history. I mean, people are now going to start saying that he was never that good. Go back to 2017 and, and look at that tape. Go back and watch he was a truly special player that that year. He was he tremendous. Was. He was. He really was. I mean, he was. I mean, it was not. You know, I, I mean, I'm not overstating it to say he was the best player in the NFL for two thirds of that season, until the, he gets to the goal line in Los Angeles, and then everything changed. Um, I think the 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 knee injury turned out to be worse than everybody thought. Uh, they knew it was a bad knee injury, but when the surgeons got in there, they found out this wasn't just a fix. This was a rebuild. So um, that certainly impacted him. Um, I definitely think there's no way of measuring this, but I don't think there's any question that it was a tremendous impact for him to stand on the sidelines and watch Nick Foles win a Super Bowl uh, and then come back the next year and then have them hand him the ball and say, okay, now you go. Yeah, it's, that's pretty devastating, you know, and to, and to feel, always feel that the city was kind of looking at Nick Foles and saying, why not him? You know, it was – I can't think of another guy, another quarterback that was put in a comparable situation at that young point in his career and then and then have to live with it. I think that had a lot to do with everything that's happened since then. Yeah, no doubt. And, Ray, I think, you know, even beyond 2017, just to get hurt in 2018 and have it happen again at the end of that year to a lesser degree. But, I mean, you remember Carson hurts his back, and it seems like they lose that game in Dallas. It seemed like the season was over. They go to LA and I think they're like 14 and a half point underdogs in that game and Nick Foles wins that one and they go on a run again and I feel like that year even compounded it even more when Wentz sees it two years in a row and I think that really made it difficult for him after that I think it definitely did um and then there was just one injury after another you know it was his foot then it was his ankle uh you know then he gets the concussion in the playoff game against Seattle um and I think just in terms of in 2017, when he was on that run before the injury, he was playing with such incredible confidence. And you could just see he enjoyed playing the game. I mean, he enjoyed playing the game, and, there, and there, wasn't an, there wasn't a game he didn't think he could win. There wasn't a game he didn't think he could win. I mean, he projected a confidence that lifted that whole team. Now, people forget all that now, sometimes by convenience, sometimes just by fate of memory. But, I mean, if you go back and you look at it, I mean, he, he, was, driving that, he was driving that train for sure. Uh, and then after that, it was never the same, you know, and that when you watch him play and there were, he had moments this year in Indianapolis where he played good. I mean, they had a stretch where the Colts were like nine and three and he was playing good football, but he wasn't the same guy. He was, he was and when it got down to big situations and big moments and those two games at the end of the year that they had to win, right. You could just see that he was trying to force things and make plays that just weren't there. And I really thought that going to Indianapolis, playing for Frank Reich, 
having a really good running attack, a really good offensive line, a really good defense, that he wouldn't feel like he had to do everything. And he could find kind of a comfort zone there. And I thought he was going to have a big bounce back year. But at the end, when it all kind of came down to him, he just didn't have the confidence in himself to finish to close the deal. And, and from, everything I've t- from everyone I've talked to or heard from this week, it's for real that the Colts are moving on from him. It's just a question of whether they're going to be able to trade him. But if they can't trade him, they're going to cut him. And here's a guy who's going to – now, no, Tommy, he's not a young man anymore. No. He's not a kid. I mean, he'll be 30 this season. He's at a point in his career where where does he go? It's just crazy how it ended up like this. Like, I know. It, it really is. Like, like him leaving Philadelphia, like I, I agreed. I thought he would have more success with Indianapolis than he did this year. And it's just crazy that after one year – that they'd be moving on and that, you know, he may never be a, a starter in this league again. Like, I see him as, as going somewhere and maybe competing for jobs, being one of those bridge guys to to a younger quarterback, but that seemed inconceivable a couple years ago. Yeah, I would have never envisioned this. I mean, listen, when I saw him playing in 2017, I mean, my feeling was that they got the guy. I mean, he's going to play here 10, 15 years. You know, you're going you're gonna to win a Super Bowl, multiple Super Bowls with this guy. I mean, I really felt he had it, you know, and but it – Right now, he's right now, he's a broken player. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of his mechanics, in terms, and certainly in terms of his confidence. And if he can't rebuild it with Frank Reich, I don't know if he can be rebuilt. Yeah, no doubt. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now. Alongside Ray Dinger on this Sunday morning, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn and Mac now on this Sunday morning alongside Ray Dinger. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. In the next segment, uh, we will go through the 2022 Hall of Fame class. And uh, your thoughts on that, Ray. And specifically, I know you're you're very happy about Dick Vermeil uh, being inducted this, uh, this year. Delighted. Delighted. I'm so... I'm so glad that that finally happened. Um, I know what it means to him. I know what it means to the guys who played for him, uh, who still love him like a father. Uh, there's going to be a, he's going to have a lot of fans out in Canton when, he, awesome. when he when he gets inducted. So yeah, I mean I, I'll talk about Dick, and also there's a, a couple of other guys in this Hall of Fame class that have strong Philadelphia ties. Art McNally, the the head of officiating, who was in, who was voted in, uh, and also Sam Mills, who played with the Philadelphia Stars and then went on and had a great career with the New Orleans Saints and the uh, uh, and the Carolina Panthers. So there's a very strong Philadelphia flavor to this Hall of Fame class. Yeah, definitely. So we'll get into that more uh, in the next segment here. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Let's go to Greg in South Florida. What's up, Greg? Hey, good morning, Greg. And, uh, and, um... <laughs> Tom, thanks, Greg. Tom. <laughs> Tom, when you were talking about linebackers, and all I could think of, you know, growing up watching the Steelers was Jack Lambert. And one of the linebackers I always liked for the Eagles, and I'd like them to get somebody like that, is, um, remember Jerry Robinson. Oh, yeah. I like those guys that roam, like you said, Ray, sideline to sideline. And uh, like a goalie in hockey, you know, you need a good linebacker to seize everything. It's like the quarterback, you know, the defense out there. D'Amico was a good one. Now look at him as a coach. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He's uh, he's proving to be a really good coach. He'll probably be a he'll probably be a head coach in this league pretty soon, sooner rather than later. But yeah, I I, I, I agree. Jerry was. Uh, we were just talking about the fact that Jerry is the last linebacker that the Eagles drafted in the first round, nineteen nineteen seventy nine. 
when the Eagles, that was the first first round draft pick that Dick Vermeil had when he got here. He they, he came in '76, and they had traded away, they had traded away all their draft picks in '76, '77, and '78. Dick didn't have a first round pick until '79. Uh, wow. it's, hard, it's hard to believe that he was able to rebuild the team without high draft picks, but he did. And the first time he had a first round pick, uh, he used what, what? He, he used it on Jerry Robinson, who who was a guy that he recruited, who was a kid that he recruited to come and play for him at UCLA. So he knew Jerry very well. And uh, Jerry came in and played very well for the Eagles and then continued on and, and played for the Raiders and had a lot. I think he wound up playing like 15 years in the league. Yeah, Jerry was great. Uh, one other thing, you know, I wasn't happy with Carson Wentz the way everything unfolded, but I did root for him. And he, he is a huge, you know, I tell my friends in the gym down here, I say he was a huge reason why we don't even get to the Super Bowl without him. And I, I do feel sorry. I hope I hope everything works out for the kid. I mean, it, it, it's a shame to see a guy just go meteoric rise and then just crash. But um, yeah, sometimes karma bites you in the butt. Sometimes it does, Greg. Um, you know, I it's it's a it's a very strange case. The case of Carson Wentz. I mean, people will talk about if 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 we have really seen the best of Carson Wentz. If this is it. You know, if he just hangs around for a couple of years as a backup and then just kind of slowly fades away, um, I mean, he'll be talked about for years as to, as to the whatever happened to, you know, um, the, the great kind of if, what, what, could, what could have been. Uh, he will be one of them because he was, in 2017, he, he gave all the indications of being a guy that was going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I mean, one of the, one of the elite, elite guys for a long time. And... Um, and it and it has it has fallen apart in spectacular fashion. Like it's just crazy to think, Ray. Like if if Wentz does not get hurt and does not tear his ACL in that game, how much different does the Eagles' future look? How much different does the future in the NFL look? I mean, do they win the Super Bowl that year? Because I mean, you couldn't have played much better than Nick played in those final two games. But I mean, you got to imagine that that Wentz continues on that upward trajectory, and and his career ends up dramatically different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not that long ago, but it feels like it's that long ago. It feels ago. like forever ago. It really does. It really I does. mean, I, I, I mean, anybody that's an Eagles fan, you remember what was being said and felt in this city the day after that game against the Rams when he goes down and he goes off and then you find out that it's a knee injury and then you find out on Monday that it is as bad as you thought and he's done for the year. Uh, I remember being in my car listening to this radio station and just hearing people call up, and I mean, it was like suicide watch. You know, it was like this is so typical of Philadelphia. Just the year when we're finally going to win it, this happens. Um, it was as if the season. It was as if the season had ended that day. Yeah, it was as if the season had ended that day because everybody felt that it was all riding on Carson Wentz, and without Carson Wentz, there was. No chance. I was wrong about it. I mean, the next day, you know, I'm doing a remote down at Chickie's with, uh, with John and Ike, and I'm getting in, like a big argument with Ike because I'm like, oh, the season's over. Wentz is out. They're, they're done, and Ike's trying to talk me off the ledge. Like, this is a good team. They could still win with Nick, and I, I didn't believe it. I, 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 I thought that they were done without Carson that year. I did, too, and I'll tell you, that was, um, that was, the, day, that was the day I really became a believer in Doug Peterson. Because he came out that day at his coach's press conference when he announced the inevitable. He came out and he announced, yeah, Carson Wentz, they've done the MRI, it's torn ACL, he's done, going to get surgery, he's done for the year. And, uh, and at that point, there was the, you know, there was no, oh, woe is me. 
uh, in it at all. I mean, Doug told the reporters that day and told the audience that was listening live on WIP, he said, listen, you know, I feel terrible for Carson Wentz. You know, to me, he's the MVP of the league. He's a leader of this football team. He's had a great year. But we're not sitting where we are right now in first place because of one guy. You know, and I remember him saying, he said, we, that's a really good football team in that locker room down the hall. And uh, he said, we're going to – and Nick Foles has won games in this city before. And we're going to rally around Nick Foles, and we're going to play good football. And I, I really thought it was a – it was a tremendous demonstration of leadership, mm-hmm. of, of, of when you look to your coach to be the leader that just kind of says, yeah, this is, a, this is a tough break, fellas. We're not kidding. Let's not kid each other. This is a tough break. But we're not turning back. You know, we're, we've come this far, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. Uh, and, and they did, you know, and against all odds. And that's when, you know, that, that's one of the things that if they, for them to win a Super Bowl would have been special no matter how they did it, okay? I mean, we all know that. If they had, you know, if they had gone, however they had done it, it would have been special. But to do it the way they did it, overcoming what they overcame, then adopting the whole underdog thing with the dog masks and being underdogs in every game in the postseason, including all the games at home, and then you get to the Super Bowl and you're playing the Patriots and you're playing Tom Brady and you're underdogs again and to win it the way they want it, um, I mean, it just made it so much better. Yeah, it just made it so much better. I mean, it would have been it would have been special, and it would have been something that the people in the city would have celebrated for a lifetime. But the way it played out was just made it so remarkable that uh, I mean, it really was. It really was. If the Eagles were ever going to win it, you knew they weren't going to win it easy. You knew it was going to have to be something like that. And sure enough, that's how it went down. That's a great point. Like I'm so happy that the Patriots and Brady won that AFC championship game. Because if you had played the Jaguars and played Bortles, like, of course it would have been, you would have won a Super Bowl. hopefully if they won the game, but it's just so much more special to do it against. Patriots. But I will, I will tell you this. <laughs> I will, I will tell you a little story about that. Okay. Okay. Um, everybody remembers how the championship Sunday goes down. The first game is, is Jacksonville at new England. Mm-hmm. That game is being played. The Eagles are going to play the Minnesota Vikings afterwards. And we're in the studio at NBC Sports Philly, and we're getting ready to, to do pregame for the Eagles game. And the TV, of course, is on showing the AFC game. And Jacksonville is ahead. Okay, Jacksonville's leading at halftime. Jacksonville scores another touchdown to go further ahead in the third quarter. And everybody in the studio, everybody in the studio, is they're all cheering. They're all screaming and hollering, Jacksonville's going to win. Jacksonville's going to win. We're going to play Jacksonville. And I said... I don't want Jacksonville to win. And everybody looked at me like, are you out of your mind? And I kind of said what you said. I said, I don't want Jacksonville to win. Because I, really I really do believe the Eagles are going to beat Minnesota. And I really believe that the Eagles, there's something special with this team mm-hmm. that I really believe no matter who they play, they're going to win the Super Bowl. And I don't want to beat Jacksonville in the Super Bowl. <laughs> first of all, first of all, Jacksonville brought back memories of the Super Bowl the Eagles lost in Jacksonville. To right. the Patriots. Okay, so I don't want any trace of Jacksonville in this game at all. Okay, but the other part of it is kind of what you said. You know, you go to the Super Bowl, and oh, it'd be Jacksonville. I mean, if you have, let's say, the guy who who sits next in the cubicle next to you at your office is like a Cowboy fan, right? And he's got like Cowboy pennants all over his thing. You know those people? They're, yeah, yeah, they're out there. Okay, uh, and. And all he's been doing is bugging you for, you know, for years about, ha-ha, the Eagles are never going to win. The Eagles are never going to win. Cowboys won. Cowboys won. And now you're going to win the Super Bowl, 
And you're going to come in that Monday and you're going to say, I'm going to tell that guy off. And you're going to say, ha ha, see? And you know what he'll say? Yeah, right. You beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. You beat Blake Bortles. Yeah. So do you really want, do you really want it to come with that? You know, so if the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl, and I really think they are, Let's beat the best. Yeah. So I'm rooting for the Patriots, and sure enough, that's how it turned out. No doubt about it. 215-592-9494. Get back to the phones we get back. Also, uh, get Ray's thoughts on the 2022 Hall of Fame class. That's coming up next. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now, along with Ray Dinger, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now today alongside Ray Didinger and Ray, you know, you look at this 2022 Hall of Fame class, obviously, you know, very special with Dick Vermeil getting in, as you mentioned, other connections locally as well with uh, Art McNally and Sam Mills. But what are your overall takeaways, you know, uh, from this class and and some of the guys that got in uh, when you view who's getting in this? year? Yeah, a little. It's um, it's interesting because it's not what you would call a big glamour class. You know, it's a lot of defensive players, linemen. Um, there's only one quote unquote skill position guy, and that's Cliff Branch, who's the old timer who gets in as a wide receiver. Uh, but you got Tony Baselli, who's an offensive lineman. You got Leroy Butler, who's a safety. Uh, Richard Seymour, a defensive lineman. Brian Young, a defensive lineman. Sam Mills, a linebacker. You know, it's those are kind of the grunts. It's kind of a grunt class. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah, nice to see them getting some love for for once in a while. Yeah, I mean, there's no quarterbacks, there's no running backs, there's none of those guys. But these guys are all really good players. I was. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny. People often uh, say, you were a Hall of Fame voter, right? And I say, yeah. And how long? I have 15 years. Ah, oh, that must be great. And I said, well, it is and it isn't. Uh, because it's you feel good that you're part of the process and that you have some say in it. Um, but people don't understand how hard it is to say no to great players. And that's part of the job, too. I mean, you're putting guys in the Hall of Fame, which is great. Uh, but you're also saying to other guys, no. You know, not this year. Um, and I don't know if it affected the other guys at the table, but it sure affected me. You know, that every year, I mean, you're, you're casting a vote about a great player. You know, a guy who was a, a great football player. And you're, gonna, and you're casting a vote that's going to break his heart. You know, and that, that was hard to me. I mean, that was always really hard for me. Uh, but... On years when somebody that you really know or somebody that you covered or somebody you were close to and you really felt was deserving, when you see them go in, you just feel good because you know what it means. Um, and especially a guy like Dick, who I, I was hoping above hope that he would get in, and now he does. You know, and Sam Mills, who to me I thought was, was just a great football player, but I always thought was a little overrated, was a little underrated and was going to be one of those guys that was just kind of going to be on the cusp of, oh, he's really close, but he's not quite there that finally he's going to get in the Hall of Fame, which he, he clearly deserves. I mean, Sam Mills is, you know, I mean, he's five eight and a half, and but he's one of the best linebackers I ever saw. I mean, he was, I mean, he was that good. I, I remember seeing in the USFL when the Philadelphia Stars played the Jersey Generals, uh, and the Generals had Herschel Walker, who was built like a tank and could run like a Ferrari, ran out of the I formation, they threw a deep pitch, and Herschel turned, tried to turn left end, and he had his pads square to the line of scrimmage, and he was, he was shifted into high gear. And Sam Mills came up, and Sam Mills hit Herschel Walker and knocked him backwards. <laughs> That's when I said, this, this little guy's a special player. Yeah. I mean, there aren't too many people that could stop Herschel in his tracks, much less knock him backwards. 
But Sam Mills did that. And he did that to more than just one guy. I mean, he did that for a career. And he was, you know, I'm glad that finally somebody just took a good hard look at him and just said, you know what? Yeah, I know he was too small. You know, I know he didn't win a Super Bowl. You know, I know he has that USFL stamp on him. But a great player is a great player. And they belong in the Hall of Fame. And now Sam is finally going to get there. That's awesome. And Ray, I'm curious as to how you weighed some of those things as a voter, because, you know, I heard Mike Lombardi on with the morning show on Friday and, and they're talking about Coach Vermeil and the winning percentage and stuff like that. And it, it, Mike Lombardi kind of wants it more stats based, but I don't know. I feel like that doesn't really tell the story of like what situation a guy came into and, and their true impact on the game. So how would you weigh kind of stats versus, you know, overall impact on the game? Well, the stats are part of it. But the idea that you kind of have to reach a certain statistical standard to even be considered is, to me, wrong. Um, because no, no two coaches inherit the same situation. Everybody steps into a different situation. You would assume that a new coach is hired, comes into a team. Well, it's probably the team is looking to rebuild. You know, the other coach got fired for a reason. But some situations have more hope to them than others. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at Dick's career record, Dick's career record, 126 wins, 114 losses, 525 winning percentage. Um, you have to put that in the context of what he took over. In Philadelphia, he took over a really bad team in 1976 and a team that had been stripped of its draft picks, as I was talking about. He didn't have any picks in 76, 77, 78, didn't have a number one until 79. So he inherits a bad team, and he doesn't have the draft picks to begin to rebuild that. And yet, by the time he got to 79, he had the team going to the championship game, and then 1980 to go to the Super Bowl. He was able to rebuild this entire franchise with basically no resources. He did it with you know, Gilbert Montgomery, a sixth-round pick, Charlie Johnson, a sixth-round pick, Carl Harrison, an eighth-round pick. I mean, he found these guys and brought them together and molded them into a team that was able to get to a Super Bowl. Then he, he retires, he's out of the game for 14 years, and then comes back and takes over a Rams team that, if anything, was worse than where the Eagles were, mm -hmm. and in three years gets in a Super Bowl and wins it, and does it with two very different styles. Like I was saying to you, I mean, he was really a run-based coach. With the, when he was with the Eagles. I mean, that offense really ran around Wilbert Montgomery. I mean, he was it. I mean, Ronnie Jaworski did a really good job, and Harold Carmichael was a great receiver. But they were a team that fundamentally ran the football. I mean, Dick wanted to control the clock, not turn it over. Uh, you know, he, Dick's idea was winning every game 17-14. to 14. That was his kind of football. Um, when he came back with the Rams, I mean, he had a whole different style because he realized, hey, man, I have, I have some real weapons here. You know, I got Kurt Warner. I got Torrey Holt. I got Isaac Bruce. I got, you know you know, I, hey, let's throw it. And so he came out, brought, drew up a whole different offense, and they won it that way. So, I mean, that's kind of the definition of great coaching to me, is making the best out of what you have. And he took two situations that most people would have regarded as absolutely hopeless and took those teams to Super Bowl. So the 525 winning percentage is very misleading. I mean, what you got to look at is the achievement. And the achievement is what he built with those teams, two Super Bowl teams that came from nowhere. Yeah, no doubt. And hey, what I remember most for is for the is with those Rams teams. And at the time, you didn't see a lot of teams playing like that. You know, it was still it was kind of transitioning to more of a passing league. But you see the explosiveness of that offense. And I thought the way uh, the way that they really utilized Marshall Falk in different ways. Like I, I feel like you didn't see teams use running backs in that kind of versatile manner before those Rams teams as much. Right. Well, part of it was there weren't many running backs that had that ability. Well, true. You know, that, I mean, there weren't that many, there aren't that many Marshall Falks that have 
the ability to line up as a as a true running back, and then on the next play line up as a true wide receiver. Um, Brian Westbrook was like that. Yeah, Brian Westbrook was really like that. I, I remember, you know, Andy Talley when he was coaching Brian Westbrook at Villanova said, you know. I have Marshall Falk playing for me out here. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, right, sure. You got Marshall Falk's playing out of the main line. Yeah, right, he's playing at Villanova. And then I went and I saw him. I said, oh, my God, I think he is. I mean, but that kind of particular skills, that kind of versatility you don't see very often. But, yeah, I mean, Marshall Falk was a perfect fit in that offense. You put him out on that field with those receivers and a quarterback that can sling the ball like Kurt Warner, <laughs> you could score on anybody. No doubt. They're a fun team to watch. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Let's go to Michael in Lower Gwented. What's up, Michael? Sounds good. Hey, how you doing? Hello, Mike. Hey, I wanted to ask you guys about. I know, I know the main focus probably for a lot of people is defensive end and linebacker. For me, really, it's finding the second receiver. I don't know if it's in the draft because besides, you know, our main guy we got last year, Devontae, we really haven't had success with that. And I don't want to pay a lot of money. So I'm really thinking, I want to know your guys' thoughts on Gallup. I think coming off the injury, I've always thought he had something. And then I'd also like to get your thoughts on uh, safety. Obviously, I grew up with Brian Dawkins. And then the way we got Malcolm, you know, we didn't get the top free agent uh, that year, which I think was Bird, uh, kind of settled for Malcolm. And it worked out great. I think, we, I think that's a piece we need. We need a stud safety. I want to love to hear what you guys think. Um. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I I think that you need a. I think you need a, a safety that can come in. I I don't know if McLeod's coming back. McLeod's been a good player, and he's you know was part of the Super Bowl team and helped you there. Um. I just think you kind of need to upgrade there too. Um. As far as Gallup, you know, I I think I, I agree with you in that I would sooner go for a veteran receiver in that other spot than try and draft and bring in another rookie opposite Smith. I don't know if Gallup's the guy I'd be thinking of. You know, I, I would look for Gallup to me is is a lot like Smith. I mean, he's more of a speed, he's more of a smaller, speedy kind of receiver. I'd like the guy on the other side to be more of a a, a bigger body possession kind of receiver. Uh, and you know, I I was, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what what Chris Godwin's position is or his situation is in Tampa now. You know, with Brady stepping down and Gronkowski probably going, they might, you know, they might be sort of breaking up that team a little bit. And, you know, maybe he would be inclined to move on. If Brady had come back, I think he probably would have come back. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe now he's more receptive to exploring the free agent market. You've got to worry about his knee injury. He's coming off a knee injury. And it was late in the year. It was December. So, you know, when is he going to be available to you? But, boy, he's a good player. It's interesting, Ray, because you, you talk about, you know, the first round kind of sets up nicely for the Eagles in terms of defensive players. If they do want to go the route of free agency for receivers, this year kind of works out for them as well because there are a lot of good ones out there. And, you know, you look at Godwin, uh, Mike Williams from the Chargers. And, you know, if you're talking about a, a possession receiver, what do you think of a guy like like Allen Robinson from the Bears? Do you think he might be a fit? Uh, I would need to do my homework because he had such a bad year this year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I need to figure out exactly what happened. I'm, look, the quarterback situation in Chicago is pretty bad, and that would impact any receiver. But I, I want to I want to do my homework on him. I I really liked him coming out of college, uh, and he certainly had a couple of other good years in in Chicago. This was not one of them. Uh, but he's he's certainly a guy I was thinking of. I, I mean he's he's one of these guys I would I would certainly be thinking of. Mike Williams is 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 kind of the bigger receiver we're talking about. 
but they need to get that other guy. I think they've got. I think they've certainly got one in Smith. I mean, Devontae Smith is is really really good and is going to be good, and he's just going to continue to get better. But you need that guy on the other side, no doubt about it. Let's go to Malik in Mount Airy. What's up, Malik? Not much. I, I'm I'm pretty happy that uh, Dick Vermeil gets into the, the hall because before the Super Bowl where we won. Dick Ramil was the coach who beat the Cowboys in the NFC Championship at, at the vet. And to be honest with you, that was a highlight of my life up until <laughs> that, that that day was like, wow. But I also understood everything it took to get there. I wasn't old enough to understand that the Eagles – I just knew the Eagles won. I was at the vet. I was there. I had no idea, you know – Okay, you got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, to get there. I just knew, hey, you know, my dad was telling me, we going to the Super Bowl. So I'm figuring, all right, we going to the Super Bowl. Having no idea what it went, what it took until I got older. And 2000, when we went against uh, the Patriots the first time, I was like, oh, this is what it takes. It's not easy. I thought, you know, this is, well, okay, this is what we do every year. Nah, it's not that easy. But when we won, I really understood the pain that we had been through all the way up to hoisting that Lombardi Trophy. That for me, I look back at every. Now I, I understand just how valuable that head coach was because, from my understanding, like like Ray, you said it, the Eagles were horrible. But you know, as a kid, everyone we got, you know, I would cheer because hey, my dad's cheering. Now, I'm, I'm happy that my dad's cheering. But you don't understand how hard that how, how horrible it was before '76 to be an Eagles fan and going to the stadium and knowing you're going to lose almost every week. And when you win, it's like, wow, we won. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty bleak, Malik. How, uh, how, 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 old were, how old were you in, 19, how, in 1980? Because you sound like a young guy I was, now. I, am, I was uh, three going on four. I, I understood like I understood that we were in the Super Bowl because my brother always caught, kept, kept me understanding because he was old enough to understand both sides of what was happening. My father, we would always watch the game when we would have the opportunity to. So I, I would always, I always knew. I watched it after I was old enough to understand what was going on. I was there. I just knew my dad was cheering, my brother was cheering. It was cold. Oh, it was cold. <laughs> but, Trust me on that. It was cold. <laughs> but it, I, I understand, and I thank him because one thing, any Eagles fan will say to beat the Cowboys at home. And the NFC Championship was the greatest thing we had seen up until that point. I don't care what they say until we won the Super Bowl. People, people will forget that easily because we went to another um, uh, Super Bowl. But that game, it, uh, beating the Atlanta Falcons, yeah. But you were talking about you were beating Danny White and the Cowboys and add two, two tall Jones in the vet. Listen, that, that game, listen, the, the, the vet exploded when we beat them. There's no question. There, there's no, there's no question about it. That was up until the Super Bowl. Up until the Super Bowl, they won. Up until Super Bowl Fifty Two, the one where they beat the Patriots in Minnesota. Um, I was at. I was pretty much at every Eagles game for better part of fifty years. And the biggest win prior to that was the win at the Vet against the Cowboys that sent them to their first Super Bowl. That was. Uh, that was anybody that was there or anybody that was in earshot of the Vet <laughs> knows. Uh, what what the what was going on in the city that day? That was uh that was a day that nobody's going to forget.
Yeah, I mean, I, I heard a lot of stories about it. Now, I can't, I just can't imagine not being alive for it. Like the buildup for an Eagles Cowboys NFC Championship game, it just, I can't imagine anything coming close to that. No, um, it wasn't. Um, I the the Eagles that week. The weather was so brutally cold in Philadelphia that week that 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 Vermeil took the team down to Tampa, and they practiced. They moved. They went down to Tampa so that they could actually have good practices because they didn't have a bubble then. They didn't have an indoor facility, so they had to practice outside, and you just couldn't practice. It was just too cold and too windy. So Dick took the whole team down to Florida so they could get a week of good preparation. And I went to Dallas. I spent that week in Dallas with the Cowboys, just watching them prepare. Um, And I was in the office of Tech Schramm, the, the president of the Cowboys. I was in his office interviewing him when his secretary... Suzanne Mitchell, I still remember her name, brought in the, uh, the wire from the league office telling him that the, uh, that the Eagles were going to wear their white jerseys in the championship game, which would then force the Cowboys to wear their blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I, I, don't think they, I don't think the superstition thing still exists, but back then it was a very real thing. The Cowboys thought that the blue jerseys were bad luck, and the Eagles had worn their green at home all year. And so if the Cowboys expected they would come in and wear their white, which they preferred, and the Eagles said, well, listen, we're the home team. We can, we can decide this. So the Eagles said, no, we're going to wear our white, and they made the Cowboys wear the blue. And I was there when she handed him the wire from the league office that said, oh, and by the way, uh, bring your blue jerseys. <laughs> That's great. Oh, boy, did he say, oh, he was so mad. Oh, his, <laughs> face, his face turned, f- turned as, as red as that light bulb. <laughs> That's great. And that, was the, that was the first blow that the Eagles struck in winning that championship game. Gamesmanship, no doubt about it. Very well played by general manager Jim Murray. 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. We'll get back to the phones. Uh, I also want to get some of Ray's thoughts on the Super Bowl last week. Um, entertaining game between the Rams and Bengals, but does end uh, with a little bit of, of controversy. So we'll get to that when we return. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Didinger right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP, Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Didinger, 215-592-9494 if you want to get in. Uh, but real quick before we get back to the phones, Ray, I wanted to get uh, some of your thoughts on the Super Bowl last week. Is uh, The Rams end up winning 23-20. I would say a pretty a pretty entertaining game uh, down the stretch. Defenses definitely took over in the second half, but you know your thoughts on the way the Rams have kind of gone about building that roster because it's not really conventional in terms of building through the draft, and they've kind of gone with this alternate approach of hey, we don't care as much about our draft picks, and we're gonna we're gonna go and, and try to get established players if we can get them. Well, um, it's a good point because I was thinking about that, uh, and it's not just the Rams. This is two years in a row. This is two years in a row now teams have won with a we're-going-for-it approach, which is sort of counter to what conventional NFL wisdom has been for decades now. It's been, you know, build through the draft, draft young players, build a foundation, you know, take the long view, don't, you know, worry about the salary cap, be careful how you spend your money. Uh, and that's been the way the teams have, have been built for like the last 20 years. Um, and now, you know, last year you had the Tampa Bay Bucks come in and they just say, you know, they, they signed Tom Brady, you know, they bring Rob Gronkowski out of retirement. They, um, they sign Antonio Brown, who they know is that that's certainly not a long-term investment, but okay, let's bring him in. You know, Leonard Fournette is out on the street. Let's bring him in. 
Uh, and Bruce Arians just basically says, you know, hey, I'm 70 years old. I don't have a whole lot of time. I want to win it right now. And they did. You know, and then this year you had the Rams who clearly were going for it. You know, make the trade for Von Miller, make the huge trade for Jalen Ramsey. You know, this year they sign Odell Beckham Jr. He's kind of this year's Antonio Brown. Mm -hmm. You know, wide receiver and all kinds of trouble, bad actor, bad in the locker room. No, no, no. We need a receiver. Let's go get him. They pay a huge price to bring in Matthew Stafford to upgrade at the quarterback position, and they win the Super Bowl. So this is two years in a row that you've had teams that have really departed from the gradual, slow build kind of thing and really just adopted it. No, you know what? Now we're going for it right now and won that way. And I, I wonder, you know, will other teams now begin to adopt that idea? You know, will other teams say, you know, let's, let's spend the money. Let's not worry about the salary cap that much. Let's trade the draft picks. Let's bring in the veteran player. And let's make our best chance to go and, and win it this year. This is two years in a row the teams have done that and succeeded that way. And I just wonder if it's going to sort of upend what has been conventional thinking in the NFL for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and I mean, with the Eagles at the spot they're in, with the draft picks they have, uh, do you think that's a model that they should consider following, or do you think they're still too far away at that point to kind of sacrifice? Yeah, I think if you're going to do this, you have to really know what you have in-house before you say, okay, we're going to go for the quarterback. We're going to go for the, we're going to pick up these three or four guys and we're going to spend the draft picks and we're going to spend the money because I think our team, the rest of our team is good enough that if we get these guys, these guys will get us over the hump. Mm -hmm. I think that's the decision that the Bucks made and they won with it. And I certainly think that's the decision that the Rams made and they won with it. Um, it. It would be disastrous if you had a middling kind of team and you took this approach and made your run and fell short. Now you have no present and no future. You know, that's kind of what the Eagles did pre-Vermeil. Right. You know, the coach, the coach, the previous coach was Mike McCormick, who came in and had been an assistant coach under George Allen in Washington. And that was when they, George Allen's motto was, the future is now. And so he traded all of his draft choices and brought in all these veteran players uh, and immediately turned the Washington team around, got them right to the playoffs, got them to a Super Bowl. And Mike was on that staff. And so when he came to Philadelphia, he tried to do the same thing. But he didn't have as good a core group to build around. So he brought in Roman Gabriel, and he brought in Bill Berge. He brought in some good players. But he didn't have enough other good players in-house to make it work. And that's how the Eagles wound up in the situation they were in when Vermeil came in, which is really rock. I mean, that's not just rock bottom. Now you're below rock bottom. you gotta, you got to make sure that you have the rest of those pieces before you invest in the two or three that are going to get you over the hump. Yeah, and uh, another part of that, Ray, and we were talking about impact defensive players earlier. I'm just curious, in your opinion, you've seen uh, so many players over the course of of your uh, football watching life and career. Where does Aaron Donald stack up with some of the best defensive players of all time? Because I mean, I, I can't remember a lot of guys that impact the game the way that he does. No, he's a great one. I mean, he's a great one. When you talk about the best defensive players I've seen, yeah, he's he's there. I mean, he's in the top half dozen. Um, you know, Angelo, when I was on with Angelo, the morning after the game, you know, he asked me, is, is Aaron Donald the best defensive lineman I've ever seen? Um, and, you know, to me, you should never ask me those questions because I get, you know, I, I get real, you know, technical about it. Right. And I said, well, you can't compare defensive ends and defensive tackles. They really are very different positions. I mean, the blocking they face and everything, their responsibilities are different. I mean, they're playing defensive line, but their end and tackle are two really different animals. Um, 
So I said, I'll just, I'll just talk about defensive tackle. And no, I, you know, I, I will still say the best defensive tackle I've ever seen was Mean Joe Green, with the, with the Steelers in the seventies. Mm-hmm. He was, he was the best. I've never seen anybody that could dominate a game the way he could dominate a game. I mean, every, and Aaron Donald does in this era. Aaron Donald is a dominant player, but not to the degree that Joe was. Uh, so, uh, but as, if you talk about the top half dozen defensive players I've seen. Aaron Donald's in that discussion. I mean, Lawrence Taylor's in there. You know, Reggie White is in there. Uh, I would say Bob Lilly is in there. Joe Green for sure. Um, I mean, those guys, um, Ray Lewis, you know, those kinds of guys are, are all in there. But in, in this era of football, Aaron Donald is special and unique because he plays every play. I mean, he, he pretty much in an era when even the great players kind of rotate and stay fresh and all that stuff, that this guy only – I mean, he only, he only came out of the Super Bowl for a handful of plays. Yeah. I mean, he played pretty much the whole game, and he did that all during the season. Yeah, and you look at the final two plays, he's still fresh enough to, to you know, get the big run stop on third and one and then get after Burrow on fourth down. And, I mean, that really sealed the game for the Rams. Yeah, he's, he, is, he, is a, he is a truly, truly great player. And I, I know there was some talk, and he had said during the week that if we win, maybe I'm going to retire. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, he's still... I mean, he's still 30, which is not young by football standards, but certainly not old. Uh, and you watched him play this year. I mean, he was as good as he ever was. And interesting thing about Aaron Donald, when he was coming out of pit and he's coming into the draft, there were not just a couple, but a lot of NFL general managers, scouts, and all that said, because I loved him. I saw him play at pit, and I said, this guy's going to be great. And the guy said to me, he's too small. He's too small. Are you crazy? Yeah. Are you guys out of your mind? Do you even, I mean, I know you put a tape measure up and I know you see what his height is and I know what, what your prototype is and okay, it's taller than that. But did you ever watch him play? Did you ever see the way this guy dominates games? Did you ever see the way he takes games over in the fourth quarter? You know, it's, it just drives me crazy that they, that they, that guys just can look at a player like Aaron Donald and say, eh, nah, too small. Yeah, and it's not like these things don't matter, but I agree. So many times I think these organizations get so wrapped up in the measurables, and it's like, in the end, can the guy play or not? And, like, I hate to give the Cowboys credit, but I think that's something they do in the draft very well is, you know, they don't kind of force positions where two years in a row, like, I, I C.D. Lamb wasn't necessarily a need for them at the time, but he was kind of the best player, so they just took him. And last year with Parsons, you know, uh, they may have had bigger needs, but they just took the best player. Yeah, and we had it. Th- we had it this year with the Senior Bowl. Uh, Kenny Pickett from again from Pitt, who's clearly the best quarterback in his crop. I mean, there's, I mean, he's not a super duper, but I mean, he's the best quarterback in his crop. Mm. Um, the, the scouts were all a Twitter that oh, his hands are too small. You know, they me- they measured they measured his hands, and his hands are too small. And I said, jeez, you, you know who the last quarterback that went to the Senior Bowl, and everybody was talking about his hands were too small. Who was that? Joe Burrow. Oh, well, that's worked out pretty well for them. We were having the same discussion about Joe Burrow's hand size two years ago when he was coming out of LSU. And I, was, and I Byron, was, all the guy does is win football games. Right. You know? Did you watch him play at LSU last year? I mean, did you watch that LSU offense? Did you watch him in the championship game? Did you see how tough he is? I mean, they're going to worry about his hand size. Well, the same thing happened with Kenny Pickett this year. That's one of the reasons why, I mean, I love the scouts, and I love to talk about the draft. And to me, it's for, I, I love it. But sometimes they just drive me crazy. Yeah, <laughs> they, they overthink it sometimes. Oh, so doubt. much. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. Let's go to Bob in Florida. What's happening, Bob? Hey Tom. Hey Ray. How you doing today? Hello, Bob. 
Um, hey, Ray, I, I would just like to say that I, I, I bought a copy of your book early on, and uh, I loved it so much that I have two brothers that I actually bought copies for and sent them uh, gifts to. So, oh, thank uh, you. It was just tremendous. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book was, uh, and I won't give much away here as a spoiler alert, but it was you sitting across from Muhammad Ali at his training camp in the Poconos. Oh, yeah, Deer Lake. Yeah, yeah uh, that was really a cool story. Yeah, that's one but, I'll always remember. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you will. I'll bet you will. Ray, you also did me a, a, a great turn. I was at the Philadelphia Park uh, for the races one afternoon, and I ran into Harry Callis and uh, Steve Van Buren with my youngest son, who had just finished playing a football game up in Northampton. <clears throat> and uh, I said, I pointed to Steve Van Buren, and I said, uh, and that, by the way, both those guys were so gracious to me and my son, and um, Steve, um, I said, that's your grandpa's favorite player right there, uh, one of the greatest running backs of all time. And Steve sat down and wrote a little note uh, to my father uh, and gave it to my, you know, to my son. You know, to, so my, you know, my son got to come home from in the park that day and uh, you know, give his grandfather a note from Steve Van Buren. It was pretty cool. I called you. Um, I didn't call you, but I called NFL Films, and you answered the phone that week and, uh, and turned me on to some uh, film footage that was available through NFL Films uh, of Steve Van Buren for my dad. Oh, so nice. For, yeah, we got him that for Christmas. Well, he's um, Steve Van Buren was uh, was a great was a great football player, obviously, but he was a, he was a, he was just a great individual. He's probably the most humble, probably the most humble superstar I've I've ever met. He he was a remarkable guy. He, he really was. It's funny. He was from the Grand Caymans, and so was my wife's father, right from the same exact time, actually. So, uh, in, interesting uh, side note there, but. Um, the thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Carson Wentz uh, for just a minute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you heard, Ray, but uh, well, you, you did a great interview um, with um, – uh, I'm having a brain cramp here a second. But you did a great interview uh, with the Raiders quarterback, the, the kid from uh, St. Cecilia. Oh, uh, um, Richie Gannon. Richie Gannon, yeah. And he was on with uh, John and Joe about a week or so ago. And he really did an unbelievable expose on uh, quarterbacks who come from less than Division One schools and their development curve. And he talked about himself, actually, uh, as well as a number of other guys. And, and, he, and he talked about the progression year to year in terms of the speed of the game uh, and then really understanding professional coverages and so on. It was really, it was, if you ever get a chance to go back and listen to that, I, I said, why isn't this guy like a coach in the NFL? <laughs> you know, but... It was really interesting. Yeah, Rich, um, Rich, could, Rich could. I mean, Rich's knowledge of the game is such, and he's been around the game long enough that um, I think he. I think if he wanted to, I think if he wanted to, he could be a very good quarterback coach. I, I could certainly see that. Yeah, he was really impressive. And you know, when I looked at Wentz in seventeen, you know, and and I really think that when Buffalo drafted Josh Allen, that's what they were hoping to get was Carson Wentz twenty seventeen, um, and they're very similar players. I I think. So, oh yeah, um, I, I can, I, Bob. I could, see, I, I could certainly see that. I mean, he um, guys that were they're almost exactly the same size uh, and a very similar skill set. Big, strong runners, uh, strong arms. Um, need some refinement. Uh, their mechanics weren't the greatest. I think the small college thing had something to do with it. You know, Allen played at Wyoming, um, and but the thing is, Josh Allen really worked at it. I mean, he went he went to those camps with Jordan Palmer and. You look at him. If you looked at if you looked at Josh Allen's tape now, and you compared that to his tape as a rookie, he all, he looks like a totally different player. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching him in that playoff game in Houston, where you know the the 
the Bills had a lead in that game, and Josh Allen, the second half, was just a total disaster. And then you look at what's happened in the couple years since, and I, I kind of concerning as an Eagles fan, because we were talking about it off the air, where Brian Dayball did a really good job of developing him, and now he's with the Giants, and he looks to be putting a pretty good staff together there. I... I think the same thing. I look, you know, the Giants, one of the things that's helped the Eagles for the last few years is the Giants have been so bad. They have the least wins in the NFL over the last five years. They have been so bad. I, don't, I still don't know how the Eagles managed to lose one game this year, <laughs> but they've been so bad. I think they're getting it straight. I, I really do. I, I, I think that I think the general manager now, uh, I think Joe Shane is, is, a, is a smart guy uh, who will bring some order to the front office and help them in the draft where they've been terrible. Um, and I think Dable is a really good coach. Everyone speaks well of him. And you certainly look at what he's done in Buffalo. Uh, and they went out and they hired a terrific defensive coordinator, Wink Martindale. Um, and they brought Mike Rowe in to be the receiver coach. And you know, I know it didn't work out for him as an offensive coordinator, but the year he was the receivers coach here, he did wonders with Aguilar and, and uh, Alshon Jeffrey. So I, you know, look, I'm not trying to scare anybody, Eagles fans, but I mean, the Giants have been a joke of a team now for the better part of five, six years. I think they're. I think they're finally getting. I think they got some people in there that might finally get it right. Yeah, no doubt. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. I'll get back to the phones when we return. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now, alongside Ray Dinger on this Sunday morning, right here on Sports Radio ninety four WIP. Sports Radio ninety four WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now with Ray Dinger on this Sunday morning. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, we still got a lot to get to in the 12 o'clock hour uh, as well. I'll get Ray's take on uh, well, how Doug is going to fare down in Jacksonville. Is uh, you are, are you <laughs> surprised, uh, Ray, that uh, that Doug is back in the NFL, or do you expect him to kind of get a job this cycle? Oh, I did. Okay. I, I did. Yeah, I. I uh... You know, he could have gotten back in last year, not as a head coach, but he had offers to go as an offensive coordinator Mm -hmm. and just decided, I really kind of think a year away would not be the worst thing. Um, I didn't realize until later on that that there were some issues in his family. His his brother was, uh, his brother was seriously ill and actually passed away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of his sons was getting married. The other son was, they were having a, he was going to have his first grandchild. So there's a lot of family stuff he kind of wanted to be there for. Uh, the kinds of things that coaches miss out on, right? You know, he 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 just no, let me take this year to, to with my family. But I I really felt like when he was ready to get back in the game, the opportunity was going to be there. And uh, you know, I think Doug's a good coach. I really do. Uh, and I think you know he'll he'll learn from his first experience. Um, but the organization the, that, that's such a backwards organization right now the, the ownership is not particularly good uh the general manager trent balky is a tough guy to work with who's if he's really running the ship some of his personnel decisions are sort of odd to say the least uh the owner seems impulsive and um uh, uh, and easily influenced mm-hmm. by the fans which is a scary proposition you know if if the organization were more stable and had better leadership and better people at the top, I would feel better about Doug's chances. But the one thing he does have, and some people are questioning this now after the way he played this year, but I do believe he does have a quarterback. I think Trevor Lawrence is really a good quarterback. He needs better people around him. He needs better coaching than what he's had. But I still believe in what I saw in college. I think he has the talent to win in the NFL. So I think he has the quarterback. But he needs he needs better structure, uh, and better people in the organization to put the whole thing together. But Doug himself, I think Doug's a good coach. I really do think he did a good job here. 
And uh, I think given given an opportunity, I think he'll do well in Jacksonville. Yeah, definitely good to see him back in the NFL for sure. 215-592-9494. Let's go to Daryl in Malvern. What's up, Daryl? Good afternoon or good morning, gentlemen. You know, this Carson Wentz narrative it seems to me to be incomplete, and there's a couple points I'd like to bring up. First of all, before the start of the 17th season, I don't know if you guys recall, but he went out to work with 3DQB. And the Eagles were not at all pleased about it, but they kind of got swept under the rug given his performance of that season. A big looming question mark for me is why hasn't he returned since? That's number one. Number two, Ray, you chart everything. I would love to know what percentage of Carson Wentz's uh, completions in 17 uh, came of more than say, 10 yards, 7 yards, came from broken plays, came from, you know, his athleticism. Because I, I really look at it and say that the game that he played in 17 was not sustainable. The DCs were going to get the book on him, figure out, keep him in the pocket, and force him to beat you with uh, a conventional passing attack and making quality reads. And 17, I'm not saying he didn't do that, but he regressed. And I'm just curious you know, taking these two things into consideration. Do you think Carson Wentz got a little full of himself and just doesn't see his game for what it is? Well, um, that was certainly um, that was certainly talked about, was the idea that he became borderline uncoachable, uh, that he became rebellious, uh, that he didn't take the coaching, and it, was, it, took, and it took the attitude that, you know, I know better. Um, that was said. I mean that that was that that was sort of a narrative that that got some traction within the building down there. You know, I don't know how true it is. Uh, I mean, my my argument in that in that debate is, I know a lot of quarterbacks are like that. You know, quarterbacks kind of you know like I know what I'm doing. You know, I I know you know I if you send a play in that I don't like, I'm not going to run it. You know, if, if you send a play in that I don't like and I don't think it has a chance to succeed, I'm going to change it. That's that's what that's what that's what audibling is all about. And sometimes when you want to give a quarterback that kind of responsibility. And the Eagles clearly wanted to establish that Carson Wentz was the leader of the team. And in 2017, he was obviously the leader of the team. Then they kind of wanted to give him that power. Now, did he take it to extremes to the point where he became hard to coach? I don't know. You'd have to be on the inside to know that. But I do know that his, his mechanics just completely abandoned him. Um, they improved significantly in 2017. But after the injury and after the surgery... Uh, he didn't have the same mobility. He didn't have the same ability to escape the rush and, and turn broken plays into big plays. And yet, in his mind, he thought he could. And he was trying to make plays that he once could make, but he couldn't make anymore. And the more he tried to do that, the more trouble he got into. I think that's kind of what happened. And then when you get into that cycle, especially in the National Football League, um, then, it just, then it just accelerates and, and it just gets worse and worse. And I, that's why I thought a fresh start in Indianapolis with a good team and a coach he knew and trusted would kind of get him back on track. And the fact that that didn't happen in Indianapolis this year, to be honest with you, Daryl, I don't know where he goes from here. I really don't. Well, there's two things I'd like to follow up on if you'd allow me. First of all, in his mechanics, I seem to recall coming out that there were a lot of questions about his footwork, about his release point, about uh, his time to release. And these things seem to kind of get fixed. And then he didn't go back to them. So, again, it's kind of underscoring his coachability. 
And more importantly, though, to the overall game, not just Carson Wentz, but the NFL in general, this seems to happen more frequently that quarterbacks taken high in the draft, it's really a hit-or-miss proposition, and there's a lot of money that gets tied up in the quarterbacks. Do you think that maybe the pendulum is going to swing a little bit and that you recognize get quarterbacks that have just sound fundamentals, quick releases, and surround them with great talent and don't go for this quote-unquote franchise mindset anymore. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, you just go for the, I think you just go for the best prospect. You know, you, there are guys like Joe Burrow. To me, they're, I mean, you look at Joe Burrow, if you saw him play at LSU, you said this guy's a franchise quarterback. I mean, sometimes you try and talk yourself into believing that the guy is, but he's really not. Like in this year's draft, like I like Kenny Pickett. I think Kenny Pickett's a good player. But I don't look at him and say, yeah, he's a franchise quarterback. But Joe Burrow, you kind of knew. He passed the eye test. Yeah, and and I think one thing, Ray, with the coachability that I, kind of encourages me about Jalen Hurts moving forward is like Jalen Hurts does not seem like that kind of guy who's going to be resistant to coaching. And, and like that moment where he comes off the field in the Washington game and Sirianni's giving it to him a little right. bit. I could, at him. Yeah, I, like I could not – like, I don't feel like that's something that Doug could have done to Carson, especially toward the end. I think that's important for a quarterback. Yeah, well, it's the, um, you know, he, he was a coach's son. I mean, he played for his father, and, and he grew up. He didn't get hollered at just on the field. He got hollered at the, at the, at the kitchen table, mm -hmm. you know. And so he understands hard coaching, and he can deal with it. And he said that after that game. He said, you know, uh, and, he, and he and Nick kind of laughed about it, but he said, no, I want to be coached hard because that's how I was raised. It's not a bad quality to have. Yeah, no doubt. 215-592-9494. Uh, we'll go back to the phones when we return. Also, I need to ask Ray's opinion on uh, one current Eagle and whether he uh, could be a Hall of Famer down the line. So we'll get to that when we return. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now with Ray Dinger, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now on this Sunday alongside Ray Dinger. In a, in a couple minutes here, I do want to ask Ray about a current Eagle and his potential Hall of Fame candidacy down the line. Talking about the Hall of Fame earlier, but uh, right now back to the phones. Let's go to Earl in the Northeast. What's up, Earl? Hey, Ray and Tom. Um, Ray, I just finished finished business. Tremendous. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. That's uh, from what Earl's talking about is uh, is my book um, called Finished Business, and it's uh, it's actually still out there. If you're, it's, it's in some bookstores and it's uh, on Amazon. So if you're interested in uh, now the football season's over and maybe you have a little more time on your hands, you feel like doing a little reading, check it out. I especially enjoy the photograph uh, on the front cover of the book where you're giving the old. President Bill Clinton thumbs up sign. <laughs> well, you know who took that picture, Earl? I don't. That picture was taken by none other than Michael Barkan. <laughs> we were up. We were up in in our um, in the booth where we were going to be doing the post game show. It was shot at the, obviously at the Super Bowl when the Eagles had won the game. The celebration. You can see the celebration on the field behind me. Right, right. I just didn't gather that was the Super Bowl. Interesting. No, okay. it was no, it was the Super Bowl. And Michael and I was I was standing there just watching the whole celebration, taking it all in. And uh, I heard Michael behind me say, "Hey, Ray." And I turned around, and there was Michael with his cell phone, and he snapped the picture. And I, you know, I, I gave him the thumbs up, and I thought it was a nice picture. And then it wound up becoming the cover of the book. So uh, thank you, Michael Barkan. Yeah, it's funny how those things. Uh come to be. Uh, you mentioned Steve Van Buren a little bit early in the show. 
I'll tell you what, number 15 is quite a lure in Philadelphia sports history. Hal Greer, 76ers. Yeah. Richie Allen, Phillies. Steve Van Buren, Eagles. Yes, indeed. Someone of my generation who was born in 1974, which incidentally is the first season of Bill Berge in town. You mentioned him before also. Right. I only remember number 15 as being like Dave Hollins, you know? So it's interesting. <laughs> your, your, your view of sports in a city is, is shaped by your youth. It really is. Oh, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I hadn't thought about oh. the fact that, uh, that number 15 has been retired by by two of the franchises. I don't know that I don't know if the Sixers have I don't think the Sixers have retired Hal Greer's fifteen. They could. I mean Hal was a Hall of Fame player. But I know the Eagles retired in fact Van Buren's number, Van Buren's fifteen was the first number the Eagles retired. And the Phillies just got around to retiring Dick Allen's number. Uh but you're right, that's a, that's a number with a real proud history here in Philadelphia. I don't think the Flyers will be retiring number fifteen for Pat Falloon anytime soon, so <laughs> No, probably not. Yeah, old, old, real old Flyers fans will remember number fifteen was as Gary Peters, but that's uh, that's going back to nineteen sixty-seven. I there weren't that many of us in the stands then, but I I do remember those original Flyers. But yeah, it doesn't have quite the number doesn't have quite the distinction with the with the Flyers. Uh, some residual questions from the Super Bowl that I know that you would have the answer most likely. Um, they were at some point talking about firsts in the game, which. I guess this was the first time two former number one overall draft choices at the quarterback position matched up against each other. Yes, I, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, I had not true? thought about that, but I, I did hear that said, yes. So, I mean, it took that long, all the, all the years of the Super Bowl, all, all that span of time for that, to, where two number one overall picks were QBs who could match up against each other. Obviously, the number one overall selection is not a quarterback every year, so... I thought that was very interesting, and then made me think back. I remember the 85 Super Bowl, which was the springboard to Buddy Ryan coming here off their success. Right. Right. Wasn't that the first Super Bowl that featured two head coaches in the game, Mike Ditka and Raymond Barry, who were already in the Hall of Fame as players, or am I misremembering? No. I Well, that that's certainly a true Actually. statement. You had um, both the head coaches were in the Hall of Fame as players. Um and uh, Raymond Barry was was a great receiver with the Baltimore Colts. I mean, he was Johnny Unitas. It was Unitas to Barry, Unitas to Barry. I mean, that was that was the uh, the great passing combination of the fifties into the sixties. And then Mike Ditka was was a was a great tight end, a prototype, really the first great prototype tight end with the Chicago Bears. Two Hall of Fame players that were both coaches. I think that's yeah. I can't think of another time that that's there aren't that many. To be honest, there aren't that many Hall of Fame players that become coaches in no. pro football. That, that, I mean, that in itself is pretty rare. But you'd have that, you would have two of them coaching against each other in the Super Bowl. You say it's the first time it happened. Um, it very well may be the only time it's happened. I can't remember another one. Yeah, and Ray, I just got to tell you, I'm looking at this picture uh, on the, the cover of the finished business, business book. This is a tremendous picture here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Michael Barkan, great job cap- capturing you in the moment and you couldn't have a more appropriate picture to be on the cover of the book than this yeah and that's it was totally spontaneous we were all we were all up there michael michael's running around with the cell phone snapping pictures of everybody <laughs> governor rendell seth barrett I, everybody I, I can only imagine how crazy michael must have been going at that point after the eagles won the super bowl we all were we all were uh that was cuz we had a our vantage point there is we were in the end zone behind the end zone where the Hail Mary came down. So it all kind of happened right in front of us. 
Uh, and where we were, we had a whole bunch of Eagles fans right in front of where we were. Um, of course, anybody that was there knows that that stadium was three-quarters Eagles fans. I mean, it, it really looked and sounded like an Eagles home game. It, it, it truly did. I mean, there was, Tommy, there were so many aspects of that that almost seemed like fate. You know, the way the Eagles got there, the whole underdog thing, um, the fact that, and this it was it, it, purely by accident, coincidence, the two musical people before the game were both from Philadelphia. I mean, people think that was, that was somehow arranged. It was done way ahead of time. There was no connection to it. But they had, you know, Lamar Odom, who's from West Oak Lane, came in and sang America the Beautiful, and Pink, who's from, I think, Bucks County. Mm-hmm. She sang the national anthem. So you had that Philadelphia connection there. Um, everything and, and the fact that the stadium was so green and the, 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 the Eagles chant was so ubiquitous all over the place. I mean, from like an hour before the game, the fans in there were chanting the Eagles chant. It just felt like, it just felt like an Eagles home game. Um, and to just watch the game unfold the way it unfolded was, uh, was truly magical. So that, that moment that Michael captured there with me up there, giving the thumbs up with the celebration going behind me, when I looked at that, I said, I can't imagine it could be a better picture for the cover of the book. So yeah. that's how it wound up there. Yeah, because I'm just looking at it. I'm like, this looks like a professional photo. I mean, it looks like you were posed and everything. And to know it's just Michael getting it uh, on the fly is just, pretty impressive. Just, just Michael got it on his cell phone. And I looked at it, and when I... I <laughs> When I wrote the book and they said, well, you have any idea for a cover picture? I said, I think I do. <laughs> and there it was. It could, could not have done a better one. There you go. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. Go to Wade and Chester. What's up, Wade? Hey, hey, what's going on, fellas? How we doing? Hello, Wade. Listen, there's some narratives that's being pushed around that bothers me. It's, ever since we've been talking about this Carson Wentz thing again, is that people keep saying and making a statement that we wouldn't have gotten there without him. And I understand that Carson Wentz was indeed a part of us winning that Super Bowl, okay, because he played those games. But we got to stop saying that you, we wouldn't have gotten – you don't know that. You know what I'm saying? We don't know that Nick Foles wouldn't have be, been able to beat 13 bad teams in that season because we only played four teams that year with a winning record. You know what I'm saying? And with Carson Wentz at the helm, we were 2-2 two and two in that because we lost to Seattle and we lost to Kansas City. We beat the Rams and we beat Carolina when Luke Keekley went out of that game. So, and to the point that the, even the team itself took offense to that because they started doing that, that, that narrative, we all we got, we all we need. Right. Our, our team actually had to go and win the Super Bowl knowing that their fans wasn't behind them. You know what I'm saying? Like, they should have been. And, and that's to, to me, that's disheartening because we go out there, we had these parades and we celebrate the Super Bowl, but understand 80% of us or 70% of our fan base didn't even think we were going to win when Carson Wentz went out. So I don't like that. And I, I think that we need to stop doing these narratives and try to just stay with the moment of reality. Because if you look at it, Ray, these, these Super Bowls and these Super Bowl teams, the way they're built, like Tampa Bay, the Rams. You can't tell me the Rams fan base actually feel connected to those players that just won that Super Bowl. Well, they're happy they won, but there's no connecting there. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, I don't even know how to put it into words, but I don't want to try to duplicate what the Rams or Tampa Bay did. What I want to do, because we know that there's a variety of ways that you can win a Super Bowl. So if I had my judges and I would want to win it 
with our core of guys. I don't want to go out and do this mercenary thing because you're only going to be there for two years. Because once you win it, then the team's going to try to re-sign the guys just to see if they can run it back and then realize they can't run it back. Well, you know pretty much. Saying? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, pretty much that's 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 the way it works. And, um, you know, that's you can't. You can't really you, you can't really compare Philadelphia and Los Angeles as football towns. No, <laughs> you know that's that's two different. It's two totally different universes. Um, yeah, the Los, you said the Los Angeles fans don't identify with this Ramsey. The Los Angeles fans don't identify with pro football. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, if you, I, I was kind of amused by everybody saying that the Rams have this big home field. The Rams have a big advantage because they're playing in, in their home stadium. No, they don't. I mean, yeah, they're playing in their home stadium, but there is no home field advantage for the Rams in Los Angeles. And part of the reason, I really believe, look, nobody ever came out and said this, and the Rams certainly aren't, as an organization, certainly aren't going to come out and say this. But I really do think one of the reasons that the Rams went so aggressively into winning, like right now, was they are trying to create a fan base in Los Angeles because the fans in Los Angeles didn't have pro football for a generation and frankly, didn't feel like they missed anything. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea to get a team in Los Angeles was really driven by the league. It wasn't driven by the fans of Los Angeles. The fans of Los Angeles have not had pro football for years and really couldn't care less. But the league decided, well, no, we got to have a team in Los Angeles. So, okay, they created the situation. They put a team in Los Angeles. But the fans have never really embraced it. So that was one of the reasons why, hey, listen, we got to get these people on the bandwagon here. So we got to go out and build a team that can compete for a championship right away. That was the mentality there. It was a whole different situation you're talking about Philadelphia. Right. And, you know, the difference, like we've talked about, is the Rams were in a different spot as an organization than the Eagles are. And like you said, part of it is trying to build a fan base, but part of it is also roster-wise, like, they were clearly close. They'd been to a Super Bowl a few years ago. They got to the divisional round last year, so it made sense for them uh, to go out and make some of these win-now moves. But where I, I disagree with Wade and is, like, I get – if you don't like Carson Wentz now, like that's, that's fine. The way he handled things, but like the reason we talk about the Eagles wouldn't have won it without him is because they wouldn't have won it without him. And like, I do think he deserves credit for, for that part of it. And, you know, to just say, Oh, well, there's no way of knowing Nick Foles couldn't have done the same thing. Well, Nick Foles didn't do the same thing. And Carson Wentz put them in a position, uh, to win a Super Bowl. And regardless of how you feel about him now, he does deserve credit for that. No question. Yeah. And there's no question. And there's, there's, the idea of trying to go back and redefine or re-examine that whole season, uh, and it's it's silly. Just let it stand for what it was. Right. I mean, it was it was a it was the best season this franchise has ever had in its history, uh, and it happened for multiple reasons. And to try and say it was this or it was that, it was what it was. And everybody that was there contributed to it. And Carson Wentz contributed mightily to it. And then when he went down, I mean, he put them in a great position. He, played, was, he was the MVP of the league up to the point where he got hurt. He gets hurt. They've got the best record in football. They're in a position where they can get home field advantage for the postseason, which was turned out to be huge. And then for his everlasting credit, Nick Foles comes off the bench and, and, and takes you the rest of the way. But everybody had a hand in it. So to try and now sit back and say, well, this guy had more to do with it or that guy didn't contribute as much, they all contributed to it. And that's what that was the beauty of the whole thing. So all these years later, don't go back and start trying to pick it apart. It was what it was. Enjoy it for what it was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Mike in Arizona. What's happening, Mike? Hey, good afternoon, guys. Uh, uh, great show today. Uh, I was glad to hear you talk about uh, Vermeil and uh, Mike Lombardi's interview because I, I heard that this week and I was – I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, um, especially in the context of the Eagles. 
Um, everyone talks about the lack of first-round picks that Dick Vermeil uh, didn't have, but he also didn't have picks one through five his first two years. Right. Was it wasn't until third year that he had a I think a third round pick. Yep. And and also there was no free agency in those days, at least as it's defined today. The Eagles' free agents were a bunch of scrap heap guys and non-drafted players. There wasn't good players coming from other teams. Right. And also there was no salary cap, so the good teams kept their great players, paid them whatever they needed to pay them. So rosters didn't turn over. So to take that team with no picks, no free agency, and turn it into a Super Bowl team, I mean, I always measure the greatness in a coach of getting most out of players, and I, I can't think of a better example of a coach getting the, the most out of those players that he had on that roster. No, you're 100% right, uh, Mike. And I um, listen, I covered that team. I was the beat guy, so I was there every day. Um, and I saw what Dick inherited. Uh, and the challenge that he faced uh, to try and, and win and beat the Dallas Cowboys, who were an absolute power, uh, and had built this team with tremendous depth and high draft picks, uh, and you're going to try and beat them in the NFC East with a bunch of guys from literally off the street or the 6th, 7th, 8th, in some cases the 15th, 16th round of the draft. Um, it, 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 seemed, it seemed impossible. It really did. And, and I knew... And I knew Dick Vermeil was a good coach. I had covered the Rose Bowl. I saw what he did taking that UCLA team and beating that Ohio State team and beating Woody Hayes. It was a masterful coaching job. So I knew the guy could coach. And he had NFL experience. Uh, and I certainly knew that nobody was working harder than he was. My God, nobody could work harder. I mean, he literally worked around the clock. Um, I just didn't see how he could possibly dig his way out of the hole that he had found himself in. And the fact that he did, uh, and by year three had them in the playoffs, and then by year five had them in the Super Bowl, is truly one of the greatest coaching achievements I've ever seen. And I saw it up close the whole time. So, you know, I knew what a coach he was. And then he comes back and does it again 14 years later with the Rams. Yeah, I mean, that goes way beyond just your win-loss percentage. I mean, that's just seeing what a guy, you know, what a guy did and how that truly, in, in my view, defines great coaching. And Dick didn't just do it once. He did it twice. So, I mean, he's every bit a Hall of Famer, no question. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, one other quick comment uh, with Carson Wentz, wondering if he may be the next uh, Jim Plunkett, Trent Dilfer, Randall Cunningham with the Vikings, where he kind of discovers himself, works hard, does what he needs to do, and, and, and leads a team to, to greatness uh, at the end of his career. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, Mike, um, I kind of thought that was going to happen with the Colts. You know, that's see what, what you're suggesting here, and those are all good examples. I mean, the Jim Plunkett example is a real good one. You know, a guy was the first overall pick in the draft, a Heisman Trophy winner, got in a bad situation in New England, got beat up, lost his job, lost his confidence, wound up on the bench, gets an opportunity through injury to take over with the Raiders and winds up winning not one but two Super Bowls. Uh, I really thought that Carson Wentz needed to get out of Philadelphia and find himself a good situation. And I thought he found the perfect situation in Indianapolis. And the fact that it went so bad so quickly in Indianapolis. At first, I thought he was going to find the scenario you exactly described, that he was going to go somewhere else, good situation, good coaching staff, and just kind of reinvent himself and go on and become the player that we kind of thought he could have been here in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. The fact that it went so bad so quick in a place like Indianapolis makes me wonder if it's ever going to happen to him. You know, we've seen examples. You know, Plunkett's an example. Dilfer's an example. There have been co uh, quarterbacks that have done that. 
And I kind of thought Wentz was going to do it, but I thought it was going to do it here. The fact that this went, this, this thing blew up the way it blew up. Now I wonder if it's ever going to happen. Yeah, and it's crazy how it really kind of came to a head the last couple weeks of the year because I think it was Christmas night where they played the Patriots at home and they won and Wentz played a pretty good game, made some made some really good throws, and they seemed to be on on the path to the postseason. And then that implosion the final two weeks of the season, and you know it's like it it's all falling apart for him now, and it looks yeah. like they're going to move on. It's just yep. crazy. Yeah, you look at his numbers, his stats for the season. You say, well, it wasn't too bad, but when you see the way it ended. And the way he played, in, all they needed was one of those last two games. Yeah. All, and they should have won them both. But all they needed was one. And they lost those games. And they lost the games really by the, because of the quarterback. Yeah, no doubt about it. And real quick before we go to break, Ray, we were talking about this off the air a little bit. But the way Jason Kelsey you know, has played the last couple of years, and obviously a big story this offseason has been him kind of weighing his options for the future and deliberating uh, about retirement. I mean, hey, as a fan, I just love to see him come back because – it's fun to watch him play, but you know, talking about Kelsey and talking about the Hall of Fame, do you think he's got a legit shot here, like yes. moving forward to be a Hall of Famer? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, right right now, I would tell you, Tommy, I'd be surprised if he doesn't get in. It's not like it's in my mind. It's not like, gee, I think he has a chance. I feel like I would be surprised if he didn't go in. I mean, I really, I think he's that good. You know, I think he's I think he's been the best center in the NFL. Not just he's been the best center in the NFL or one of the three best for a very long time. And what's so crazy, Ray, is like for a position where there's that much physicality and that much contact, obviously every single play, he's very he's never hurt. I mean, he he came off the field for what, a few plays in the Giants game in New York, but you know, when you look at how great this offensive line has been, over the course of the last five years, I mean, so much of that is due to Jason Kelsey and the way he's able to kind of kind of keep things together up front. Yeah, he, uh, you you just said it. I mean, he's the one that keeps it together. I mean, look at, I mean, look at the guys. Look how much change there's been around him. How many other guys have gotten hurt and they put new guys in and they come together. And tremendous credit to Jeff Stoutland, the offensive line coach, who does a great job. But that's Monday through Friday. On the field on Sunday, the guy that, when they break the huddle and get to the line of scrimmage, the guy that has to pull it together is the center, and it's him. Uh, and he's, he has done a tremendous job um, in terms of his smarts, in terms of his uh, command at the line of scrimmage, and just the leadership that he projects there. I mean, he's, um, yeah, I mean, to me, he's every bit a Hall of Fame player. And I would, um, I mean, I, when, I, when I was a Hall of Fame voter, one of the ways I used to judge was kind of like guys in the Hall of Fame, guys who are in the Hall of Fame that have already been in there, how would they compare to the guy we're talking about now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I look at a guy like Kevin Mawai, who was, who was a center with the Jets and with Seattle, uh, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And to me, Kevin Mawai and Kelsey are very similar. They're very, very similar in terms of their strength, their ability to make plays, their ability to play at the second level, move, pull, um, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, Kevin Mawai to me was kind of Kelsey before Kelsey. But I think Kelsey is a better version of that. So if Kevin Mawai's in Canton, I don't see any reason why or any way that he couldn't be in Canton. So I, you know, there aren't, I don't know that there are brothers in Canton. I mean, the Mannings probably will be at some point. But to me, I think the Kelseys are both going to be in Canton. I don't, you know, Travis is certainly on a Hall of Fame path right now. And I think Jason Kelsey's already there. Yeah, they're tremendous. They're just, you know, obviously both both tremendous at what they do. No doubt about that. Two one five five nine two nine four nine four. If you want to get in, uh, still run through everybody's calls when we get back. Also, need to ask Ray about 
Jalen Rager and his future and whether that's going to be in Philadelphia. So we'll get to that as well. I'm Tom Kelly. In for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger. Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly filling in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger. 215-592-9494. If you want to get in. And real quick before we get back to the phones, Ray, I did want to ask you about Jalen Rager. Because, you know, we talk about the Eagles and and the draft history and the Rager pick, uh, it gets brought up. I mean, I think every, at least if not every day, every week, several times on this station. And I mean, it just hasn't worked out for him in Philadelphia two years in. It hasn't really gotten any better. Do you see, you know, him being back here next year or as the Eagles look to overhaul this wide receiver position, do you think it's better off just to cut ties and move on? I think it would be. Um, But if, you know there are going to be people within the Eagles organization, particularly Howie Roseman, <laughs> who are going to be very reluctant to, to part with, with Jalen Rager. I mean, there's going to be some people there that the sentiment's going to be, well, let's bring him back and, and maybe, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this year it'll all, it'll all click. Um, and, you know, sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes guys get off to bad starts, and then by year three all of a sudden they figure it out, and guess what? He turns into the player we thought he was going to be. I don't see that with Rager. You know, I, I really don't. And and part of it is I just never thought he was that good. I mean, I we were talking when we were talking before. I, I said that people tried to make the comparison between his situation and Nelson Aguilar, wide receiver, first round pick, struggled early in his career. I see them as very different cases because I saw Aguilar play at Southern Cal. I knew he had talent. I knew he was good. Um, he just kind of had to figure it out at the NFL. He kind of had to get. He kind of had to get acclimated, but I really felt that I know he can play up here. I mean, I've seen him play well enough, often enough, that I know he can play. I know the ability is there. I never felt that way about Jalen Rager. I mean, I saw him I saw him play at TCU. You know, I did all my homework going into the draft, and I knew he was one of the guys in that draft class, you know, with Jefferson and Lamb and all those guys. And I, I just don't see it. I'll tell you, I had him as a fourth-round pick. Wow. I mean, that, that was the grade, I, the grade I gave on him was a fourth round. I mean, I thought that's kind of what he was. I thought he might be a kick returner. He might be a gadget kind of guy. But I never saw him as a, as a guy you would draft in the first round to be a frontline receiver. I just didn't see it. So, you know, I'm, I'm of the mind that I'm willing to move on because I just, unlike Aguilar, who I thought, this guy's got ability. You just got to unlock it. And in Rager's case, I'm not sure the ability's there to begin with. Yeah, and, and uh, as for the other side of the ball, Ray, another first-round pick that just hasn't panned out, you know, is Derek Barnett. And, you know, five years in now, I thought he was going to be a really good player. And, and for this team that, that really needs to infuse the pass rush, is it worth trying to bring him back on, like, a one-year deal if you can? Or is that another situation where it's probably better to just cut ties and move on? I think it's, I think it's better to move on. And I was, unlike the Rager pick, I never understood. I just, I just thought it was a bad pick from the minute they made it. Um, I, I, I like the Barnett pick, you know, I, I saw him at Tennessee. I thought he was a good player. Um, I thought 14th in the draft was right about where I thought he was going to go. The Eagles had a need there. I thought this is a slam dunk. Really? I thought this guy's going to come in and I know the comparisons were made. He broke Reggie White's record at Tennessee. So, and I never was prepared to compare him to Reggie. White. <laughs> right. There's only one of those. Okay. But there's only one Reggie White. So I never went there. But I certainly thought that he was going to come in and be a good player here, uh, and he really hasn't approached that. I mean, he was better his first year, then, and it kind of all went backwards. And then by the last couple of years, um, it was it would reach the point where he was 
it was counterproductive. I mean, he was making more negative plays. He was hurting you more than he was helping you. Um, he just never, uh, he was never, he was always a little bit undersized. Uh, and his, his takeoff, his, his quickness off the ball was never as good as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew he was always going to be giving away some size. He's not the biggest defensive end. But I thought, I thought he was going to be quick enough off the ball that he could get to the corner and get the pressure. And it never was. He was never quite big enough, and he was never quite fast enough. He, just, he wasn't terrible. But he was just kind of average. And when you're talking about the 14th pick in the draft, he's got to be better than average. Yeah, no doubt. And the Eagles certainly you know, can't afford to miss on those kind of picks in the first round uh, with their selections this year. Uh, let's go to Jack in Santa Barbara. What's up, Jack? Hi, Tommy. How you doing? Hey, hi, Ray. Hello, Jack. How are you? I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing great. And I want to uh, acknowledge the tone-setting way you and Glenn run the tell us your story kind of show and you guys are doing it this morning um, and, and acknowledge that uh, finished business is you telling us your story and I love it all uh, the way you put that together Ray oh thanks yeah. Jack I appreciate that I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed the book yeah the, the real special part is at the beginning of your career where you're a young reporter uh, for Delco Times, and and the way you handled the whole uh, obituary thing with the with the Vietnam pictures and hand carrying the pictures back to the people who who lost their sons in Vietnam, I thought that was a real tone setter to me about you. Oh, so thanks, Jack. I think, I, that was I the t- that was the that. Um, that was the toughest job I've ever yeah. had. That was the toughest job I ever had. I graduated from college in 68, and I went to work at the Delco Times. They didn't have a job for me in sports. They put me in news. Uh, and one of the things, one of my jobs, and everybody knows what was happening in 68, 69, the Vietnam War was at its peak. Um, and it seemed like every week some kid from Delaware County was, was killed. Uh, and it was my job to go to the house and interview the parents. And... Uh, God, I, it, was, it was the toughest job ever. And I always had to ask for a picture to bring back to the office with me. And like you said, Jack, I, I never trusted the mail. I was never going to put that picture in the mail. Um, I, I promised the families I would bring it back personally, and I always did. But, boy, it was tough. It was, that was, people, people, people always said to me over the years, boy, it must be tough, boy, it must be tough for, to, to have to go into a losing locker room. It must be tough to be in a losing locker room. I said, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. That, that, there was nothing tougher than going in the home of a, of a family that had just lost a, a son in a war and have to ask him if they'll let you in and, and talk to you. That, that's the toughest thing I ever did. Yeah, well, page 40 showed me how stand-up you were, and I just wanted to put that out there to everybody who was even thinking about reading Finishing Business. Because Thanks, Jack. Go for it. <laughs> um and and I want to address the narrative about Carson here, if I may, a little bit. Sure. Um, in, in this context, if you look at all those guys on that team that were champions already, the Chris Longs and the LeGarrette Blunt and Jason Kelsey, who's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, they bought into who this kid was. They knew that he had that it. He proved it in in Seattle when he made that throw that few quarterbacks could have made. You know the one I'm talking about. And I, I don't even think they won that game, but 
but that throw that he made in that game, I think it was to Aguilar. Yeah. I mean, he did yeah. He did it multiple times, Jack. I mean, he made some plays that year that just there weren't too many quarterbacks exactly. in the NFL that could make, and he did it. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, that play he's talking about in Seattle when, you know, he's getting drug, drugged down and is able to find it, find Aguilar down the field. And, Ray, that they're the kind of plays that you talk about, like, earlier on where, you know, he was just able to do those kind of things and he just can't do them anymore. And I think that's really gotten to him mentally. And the play that always comes to mind for me is, is that Washington game when he's in the middle and the Monday night game and yeah. it looks like he's he's dead to rights yeah, and then he, pops he dis- out. He disappears. I yeah. mean, you don't even see him. All you see are Washington players, and all of a sudden he bursts out of it and runs for 25 yards. Yeah, and it's just like that kind of stuff was never never there again after that year, and it's kind of, kind of sad. It really is, and I kind of wonder if we'll ever see it again. Right now, you would probably say no. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Hal in Las Vegas. What's up, Hal? Fellas, how are you? Uh Ray, I'd like to talk about two things uh, you said and link them together. Uh, Yesterday you mentioned Dean, the linebacker from Georgia. Yes. And today you mentioned about coaches and GMs going overboard with the measurables. Yes. (laughs) And you mentioned Dean's six foot tall, and they downgrade him because of that, which is silly, I think. I, I agree with you that way. Yeah, he probably, you know, he probably won't even measure that when they go to the combine. He'll probably, he'll probably measure less than six feet, which will drop him another couple spots in the draft. Uh, I, I call it the Mike Mamula syndrome, especially for the combine. I'm, I'm sure you remember, you remember him. Oh, very well. How he measured out all these great things. He, Eagles drafted him in the sixth round. And he turned out just to be like an okay player. Nothing yeah. special. Yeah, well, I'll give you another one. Cooper Cup. <laughs> I mean, exactly. when Cooper when Cooper Cup, when he came out of college, they said, well, he's too, he's not that big and he's not that fast. And, and I said, again, I said, did you ever see him play? <laughs> the guy mm-hmm. always gets open and he always catches the ball. I mean, that's what receivers do, you know? And, uh, but there are always these examples of guys. I mean, people thought Tom, you know, and when Tom Brady came out, he was a sixth-round pick because people thought he didn't didn't have a strong enough arm and he wasn't mobile. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. they they make mistakes all the time. That's but see how that's that's why the draft is fun. That's why that's why fans really get into the draft. That's why people that's why people become draft nicks because everybody can become a general manager. You know, everybody thinks that they can judge talent better than the general manager of their local team. Sometimes they are right, <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. and sometimes they're wrong. But that's but the fact is that as much as the NFL would like you to believe it's a science, and they talk about it as a science, and they try to make it a science with the way they measure and all the testing and all that stuff, the fact is it still comes down to a roll of the dice, and a lot of times it just comes down to your gut. Watch the tape and just decide for yourself: can this guy play or can he play? Okay, I, I, and also a lot of the mock drafts have the Eagles taken uh, the Iowa center, uh, yes. Linderbaum. Yes. And uh, I kind of like it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't argue against it. Um, uh, that's uh, is a kid named Tyler Linderbaum, who's a center at Iowa. He's probably the best center in college football. Um, and there's the, the thinking is, Kelsey, if, if he isn't retiring this year, he's going to be retiring soon. So he's going to be a hard guy to replace. And and Tyler Linderbaum is, if you watch him, he is very much like Kelsey. He's about the same size, plays the same kind of game, has a lot of the same kind of skills. Um, if you were trying to figure out your own Jason Kelsey or your next Jason Kelsey, Linderbaum in this draft class is probably the closest fit. 
So there are some people that say with three first-round picks that the Eagles maybe should use one of them on whoever that next center is going to be. If, that's, if they decide that's the way to go, then he would be the guy in this draft. He's, I have him as my number one center. Do you also think, Ray, that, that they're still considering maybe moving a Sayamalu or, or a Dickerson to center and, and keeping one of those guys there long-term, somebody that's already in-house, or do you think the future center to replace Jason Kelsey is not currently on the roster? Um, I, would, I would not move Dickerson. I, I, would, I, I think I like – it looks to me like he's really – He's, I think he's won that job at left guard. I think he's really good. He played really well this year. He really did. I mean, he got off to uh, he got he got off to a slow start, but I mean, he had, didn't really have a training camp because he was rehabbing the injury. Mm. Um, he got put in at guard, which he hadn't played for a while. He had been a center at Alabama, so they and he got kind of got thrust in. He was just he was just being he had just been activated. Now all of a sudden, there's the injury, and then they got to put him on the field. So it took him a couple weeks to kind of get his feet on the ground, but once he did. He was really good. I mean, for, as a run blocker, he was good right away. Uh, the pass protection came along a little bit slower, but it didn't take long. By midseason, he was playing very good, and by the end of the season, he was playing really good. So I, I, I really like the pairing of he and Maialata on the left side. I would like to keep that together. So my first thought, if, if for some and I agree with you, I don't think Kelsey's retiring. I think he's going to come back and give you at least one more year. But Okay, if he suddenly surprises you and says, you know what, I'm done. My first thought would be to try Sayamalu at center because he's coming back. And I saw him play in college. I saw him at Oregon State, and he played every position on the line. But to be frank, his best position was center. I re- and I think they kind of drafted him with the idea in mind that he was probably going to be the successor to Kelsey ultimately. Right. So right now, if I, if I were to project it, I would say I'm, I'm willing to give Sayamalu first crack at the center position because I've seen him play it in college, and he played it very well. Yeah. 215-592-9494. If you want to get in, one more segment left. We'll run through uh, the rest of the calls as well. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger right here on Sports Radio 94 WIP. Sports Radio 94 WIP. I'm Tom Kelly in for Glenn Mack now alongside Ray Dinger for one more segment here. And, Ray, we talked a lot of football today. I haven't gotten into a lot of the basketball stuff. Did you catch any of the uh, NBA All-Star festivities last night, the slam dunk competition or any uh, of that stuff? No, I have no interest. Well, you you made the right decision. You definitely made the right decision. We were just talking with, during the break with uh, Rob Ellis, who's coming up at 1 o'clock. He seems to have the same conclusion. It yeah. was It was the worst slam dunk competition I've ever seen in my life. It's like they got to just do away with that. The, the, the three-point, the skills competition – it was it was a terrible product to watch last night. So. Oh boy! Well, yeah. I I sort of I sort of got away from that a few years ago. I haven't watched uh, the skills competition in a long time. It 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 just kind of it just kind of wore out its welcome. You yeah. know, it it just it just I, at first it was kind of a novelty. You know, and when you had guys like Dr. J and Dominique Wilkins and stuff, and it, okay, it was kind of fun. Michael Jordan, you know, it was kind of fun. You had big name guys, and they were doing some things you'd never seen before. But now, you know, kind of been there, done that. It's bad when you can tell the people broadcasting it. Like Shaq was obviously like completely disinterested in it. It's like when the people <laughs> who are calling the event have no interest in it. Yeah, I think that's a bad. Story. I I agree. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. Robin Overbrook, what's up, Robin? What's going on, guys? Hello, Rob. Good afternoon, Ray. Mr. Kelly, how are you? Hey, Rob. Hey, listen, I, I I just want to chime in. I read your books too, Ray, and you you are a master storyteller. You know. Oh, thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. 
And here's a, and I got an idea for a book. Uh, how come no one's ever written a book about the uh, nine and seventy three season of the Sixers? Oh, the Sixers. <laughs> you know, Ray, I was in high school, and I went to about thirty one of those home games. Oh my goodness. Why I, just, I got it? Why would you do that? Cause they were giving out free tickets. And oh, was, okay. Yeah, they were. You you could come down there on Buffalo Braves night. You can come down there and buy a two dollar ticket. You have a Buffalo nickel. You get the other ticket free. It was just you know they would just come to the neighborhood and say, look, here's tickets. You go down there, it's like four or five thousand people in the spectrum. It was it was interesting, very interesting. It is hard to believe that a team could be that bad uh, and and not try to be that bad. I mean, they were that, that this wasn't this wasn't the precursor to tanking they were just that bad i mean they were yeah. nine and 73 bad yeah roy rubin what a what a what an amazing coach that guy was yeah he was, who, he was a high school coach he was a high school coach forget. from long island that they put in the nba yeah yeah, yeah. Who, could, who could forget emmanuel leaks and uh johnny block but um uh, getting to dick Vermeil, you know what I, I i'm glad he made the hall of fame he was a great coach but for me it was just unfinished business right because when when we beat dallas that was our Super Bowl, and when we went to the Super Bowl, we were just as flat, and we and Oakland was just a ordinary team, and we had beat them during the regular season. We should have won that game, man. Yeah, uh, Rob, I kind of agree with you. Um, I certainly thought the Eagles were. They, you're right. They had played Oakland um, at the vet during the season. But it was a tough. If you remember, it was a tough game. It's it was like it was like it was like ten seven. It was a it was a brutal. It was a brutally tough game. But the Eagles did win that game. They sacked Plunkett, I think, like seven times. Uh, the Eagles were clear. I I agree. The Eagles were a better team, but they weren't that day. Uh, I think two. Th- I think you touched on one of the things. I, I really do think that the Eagles were a team under Vermeil that played a lot on emotion. Uh, yeah. And they had, emotionally, they had, they had peaked with the Dallas game. They really did. Uh, and they didn't quite have the same energy or the same emotion for the Super Bowl, which seems odd, but I do think the kind of team they were, that was true. And the other part of it was that Eagles team, those guys on that team had never been to a Super Bowl before, whereas the Raiders had. You know, yeah. the, Raiders yeah. had just, you know, the Raiders had just won the Super Bowl a couple of years earlier. Most of their guys had been through the Super Bowl before, and that's a whole different animal, the Super Bowl. I mean, it's everything that happens during the week, it's just, it's just not a typical football game. And I think the, the Super Bowl experience that the Raiders team had uh, and the Eagles did not, I think that factored into it too. Yeah, and that's also factored into our second Super Bowl loss. Andy Reid, we should have – that was – Patriots were just an ordinary team that day, and, you know, we should have we should have beat them. They, but, had their know, chan- they had their chances in the first half, Rob. They really did. Um, that was everybody talks about the end of the game where Andy kind of mismanaged the clock and took too long and which is all true. But the Eagles had their chances in the first half to get get that game by the throat and they didn't. I mean the Patriots played a poor first half and when they went to the halftime tied you kind of felt that they had they had lost a big opportunity there. No doubt about it, right? Like I think about it the same way like to me, the turning point in that game was when Donovan throws the pick and it gets negated by a penalty, and it's like, okay, you have you have another life here. And then he throws another pick. I think it was maybe the next play, or was it later in the series? And to me, that was like you really gave away an opportunity. Yep, there. they did. That that was a huge moment in that game. Uh, let's get Aaron in Norristown in here. What's up, Aaron? Good afternoon, right, Tom? How you guys doing? Hi, Aaron. Good. Yeah. Hey. So before I make my point on Carson Wentz, you brought up number fifteen earlier, and. Uh, Fire's history lore. Um, Ray, I'm disappointed you didn't bring up Terry Crisp, Bill Clement, or even J.J. Daniel. 
who's responsible for probably the <laughs> loudest moment in the spectrum. Am yeah, I, I think that um, I actually thought of Terry Crisp. I actually thought of Terry Crisp. I, I went to the original number 15, who was Gary Peters. But yeah, um, I mean, well, J.J. Daniel is responsible for the loudest yeah, moment. Yeah, and I, you know, I never, I never even gave Daniel a thought. And I think Billy Clement was 10. Yeah, yeah well, he, was, he wore 15 and 10. He wore both numbers. Okay, I, I remember yeah. him as a 10. Okay. So, yeah, so go, anyway, going to uh, Carson Wentz, who I think he's in the uh, place where quarterbacks now go, to, now go to die. They lost Andrew Luck three years ago. They, they got rid of Phil, they killed Philip Rivers' career, and now it might be the last time that uh, Carson Wentz starts the game. And I think it actually started his downfall. Well, it started in college his senior year, and then it, I think it ended, uh, well, that went downhill for him when he got hurt in the Rams game because he really relies on his legs, and he's never had that first step since then, but he still thinks that he does. And if you look at his senior year in college, where when we drafted, he's like, oh, he won the, he won the uh, championship in college. Well, he pretty much had nothing to do with them winning. And Ray, I'm going to ask you a question. If, if, if Carson Wentz started the first three games of his senior year, got hurt, and Easton Stick leads them to the championship game against the team in Jacksonville State that you could have probably started a quarterback and they would have won, and Carson Wentz almost demands to start that game and his coach complies, who do you think deserves to start that game his senior year? Well, I guess as, as the upperclassmen, they probably would have gone to Wentz anyway. But there was dissension on that team, which was documented and wasn't really talked about much, that Easton Stick deserved to start. He's the one who led him in the game. And then Carson goes into that game, plays like garbage. He was like 6 for 16. He won. They pretty much won that game with their defense. He ran the ball like nine times for 80 yards. So I think his inability to be, even though he's mobile, his, he was really relied on that quick first step to get out. And he relied on his legs to do everything. I think that injury against the Rams is really – he never, he'll never have that step again, unfortunately, and, unless he, and he is unwilling, as he's admitted, to change to learn to become a true pocket passer, which he has the talent to be. So yeah. well, I don't think he's ever going to start again in the NFL. Well, no, he probably will, just, be, just by the nature of the league. I mean, he'll get an opportunity to be on another team, um, and he'll probably go there as a starter or at least competing for the starting job, and then it's up to him. And then it's up to him. Um, but will he, ever get, will he ever really rise to the promise that we thought that he was going to be? At this point, I would say it probably doesn't look like it is. You know? No, I mean, you felt like if that was going to happen, it was going to happen in Indy. I really thought, I really thought, I, honestly, t- Tommy, I really thought that he was going to be a, a comeback of the year guy in Indianapolis. I mean, it all seemed like it was set up perfectly for him. And he went there, and for part of the year, he played really well. But at the end, it just completely fell apart to the point where now they're ready to part ways with him. And now he's just going to become, it's hard to believe. I mean, he's, a, he's going to be 30, and he's going to be a journeyman. Whoever thought that his career would end this way? No, completely unpredictable four years ago that it would have ended this way. But uh, that'll do it for us today, Ray. Quick three hours. It was very enjoyable. I appreciated uh, you know, working with you today, and hopefully we get to do it again I sometime en- soon. Enjoyed it tremendously, Tommy. Let's do this again. Yeah, sounds good. So that'll do it for us. Uh, you guys on hold, stay there. Rob Ellis coming up next. He's got you at one. Thanks to Moshe Kravitz for producing. Uh, I'm Tom Kelly with Ray Dinger, Sports Radio 94 WIP.